Welcome to Angry Americans, and welcome to episode 59. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you are not paying attention. Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. You said many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes. Why does that matter? Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day? Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me. Ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Yes, behind you, please. Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question That's like that. That's not a nasty Please question. go ahead. Why does it matter? Okay, uh, anybody else? Please go ahead in the back, please. I have two questions. No, it's okay. But we'll you pointed here. to me. I have two questions, Mr. Next. President. Next, next, please. But you did. You called on me. I did, and you didn't respond, and now I'm calling on. Sorry, I just want the to young lady in the back, please. I just wanted to let my colleague okay. finish, but can I ask you Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Appreciate but it. You thank you very much. That's President Mayhem talking to Asian-American CBS White House correspondent Wei Zhejiang. Trump's comments were nasty. They were dismissive. They were racist. Now, we all know he has a problem with the press. and We all know he has a problem with women. And we all know he has a problem with just about anyone who's not white. And we all know he especially has a problem with black people. He's a racist. And he's running from it. He's running. He's running from the hate, from the enemies, from the racism, from the virus, from the truth. Yep, he's finally on the run. He can run, but it's too late now. It's all over him. It's in his brain. It's in his bones. It's in his blood. It's in his heart. And like the stupid, racism infects, spreads, and destroys. But we'll fight him on it because it's out there now in the open for all to see, for our kids to see, for our grandkids to see, for history to see. He can't run from it anymore. Just like he can't run from his record or the virus. He tried, but the virus is too fast, too effective, too cold, too complex. All the things he's not. And now it's got him. He tried to deny it. He tried to avoid it. He tried to dismiss it. But it just kept coming. And it just kept killing. Killing more and more by the day. We're doing our best to flatten the curve and beat the virus. But it just keeps coming. I mean, my heart's beating. My heart's beating. My hands are shaking. My hands are shaking, but I'm still shooting. I'm still getting the headshots. It's like, boom, headshot. Boom, headshot. Boom, headshot. Headshot. The virus keeps taking people down. One after another. And more and more people of color, especially. But Trump is not fast. He's no runner. And the virus kept getting closer and closer and closer. It was in Congress, then in the media, then in the Navy, then in his hometown in New York, 
than where he lives in New York City and where he stays in Mar-a-Lago and among his Senate enablers, like Senator Rand Paul. Then it got to Pence, creeping closer and closer, making his paranoia even greater. And now it's inside the White House. After one of the president's personal valets and Vice President Pence's press secretary both tested positive in the last week, Mr. Trump said White House staffers will now be required to wear masks except in their own offices. But President Trump is exempt from that rule and dismissed the idea that a lack of precautions led to infections. I don't think the system broke down at all. It can happen. It's the hidden enemy. Leave me alone! But he can't get out of the house. He won't get out of the house. The virus has now infected two members of the White House staff, one an aide for Vice President Mike Pence and the other a valet for President Trump. They've both fallen ill. And it's caught up to him now. It's not just killing poor people. It's not just killing sick people. It's not just killing black people. It's all over his friends. It's in his house. And there's no running anymore. It's got him. And so does accountability. Congress couldn't hold him accountable. The media couldn't hold him accountable. The Democrats couldn't hold him accountable. The Republicans definitely couldn't hold him accountable. But nature will. The virus Will. It's caught up to him. Just like the lies, the deceit, the nastiness, the selfishness, the crookedness, the corruption, the treachery, the traitorous actions. Bob Mueller didn't get him. Nancy Pelosi didn't get him. The virus got him. And the virus is going to take him down. It's revealed him. And it'll destroy him. He's lost the American people. He's losing his base. He's losing the election. And maybe the Senate for the Republicans, too. And maybe even his life. It is a race for the White House. And he and Biden are in the finals now. But there's the old saying, when you're running from a shark, you don't have to be faster than everyone. You just have to be faster than one guy. You just have to be faster than the shark. And that's where things are now for Trump and Biden. They don't have to be faster than each other. They just have to be faster than the virus. And Bunker Biden is hunkered down. And the virus is outside, like Boggins, Bunts, and Bean, waiting outside for the fantastic Mr. Fox. But Trump... Trump's not fantastic Mr. Fox. He's the rat. He's out in the open. He's arrogant. He's careless. And the virus? The virus is going to get him. If not personally, politically. Because the virus is fast. The virus is effective. The virus is smart. And Trump is not. And his arrogance and lack of discipline has finally caught up to him. And so is the virus. And maybe finally soon... Justice will, too. Donald Trump won just 8% of the African-American vote four years ago. The virus is now killing African-Americans at a disproportionately high rate and driving African-Americans into high unemployment numbers, too. 
And Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, is pushing for more campaign efforts to woo black voters to Trump. He believes that if Trump can increase his share of the black vote by as little as two percentage points, it could be the difference in November against Biden. This in support of the president, who told four congresswomen of color to, quote, go back to the countries where they came from, although three of them were born in the United States. Trump's re-election campaign is actually holding weekly online events called Black Voices for Trump. Apparently, Black Voices for Trump exist, and these voices try to advertise his record for black people. He also pushed $10 million into a Super Bowl ad with a black woman in it, highlighting Trump's efforts to reform the criminal justice system. He's held events at the White House celebrating his support for historically black colleges. And the New York Times highlighted that for the last year before the pandemic hit, what the campaign lacked in results, it tried to make up for with spin. They started a Black Voices for Trump coalition that the president kicked off in November. And they plan to open Trump campaign storefronts in black neighborhoods in critical states like Florida and Pennsylvania. And campaign officials have encouraged black voters to connect with the Trump campaign by texting the word woke to its main number. And campaign officials even conducted polling to test the word black versus the term African-American, an official said. They concluded that black voters responded better to being referred to as black. And of course, he and all his surrogates over the last three years have tried to claim over and over again that the low unemployment rate is a selling point to African-American voters, consistently claiming they've got a great job market and higher wages. Well, that was all weak to begin with. And now... It's eclipsed not just by his consistent racism, but by the numbers. And the numbers are creeping up and suffocating him. And any hope of moving the needle with black voters. And Jared Kushner knows about as much about black voters as he does about pandemics. Because the coronavirus is infecting, killing, and hurting black Americans at disproportionately high rates. There are no official national numbers, but the limited data we have at the local level is revealing. 72% of the deaths related to COVID-19 in Chicago have been black people. 72%. That's in a city that's only about 30% black. Here's Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot. I think I've had some of my roughest days as mayor once I learned what these disparities are. The fact that black folks are dying Mm. seven times the rate of any other demographic, that's a hard thing to even wrap your mind around. Seven times the rate of any other demographic. It is hard to get your mind around, especially when you're Donald Trump. Overall in Illinois, 43% of people who have died from the disease are African-Americans. And that's a group that makes up just 13% of the state's overall population. African-Americans in Michigan represent 40% of the COVID deaths, even though they only make up 14% of the population. In Louisiana, 70% of the people who have died from COVID-19 are black even though they're only about 30% of the population there. And officials in lots of states, including some of the states hardest hit by the pandemic, haven't even provided statewide information about the race of patients. That includes California, New Jersey, New York, and Washington State. But in this episode, we won't run from race. We won't run from responsibility. And we won't run from the virus. We'll stand tall and take them head on. So in this episode, we're going to focus on another hidden front line in our war against the virus. In this episode, we dig into race and COVID-19. The pandemic is devastating America, and Black America especially, maybe more than any other group in the United States. As many as one-fourth of the overall American dead from the pandemic could be Black. 
and people of color are disproportionately serving on the front lines of healthcare, public transportation, food services, and many of the other industries that have been hardest hit. The impact on black people is another hidden and underreported front in our war against COVID-19. And meanwhile, Ahmed Aubrey, a 25-year-old black jogger, was ruthlessly murdered by two white men in Brunswick, Georgia, sparking outrage and anger nationwide. And all this while President Trump continues to make racist statements at the White House aimed at Chinese people and others. He can run, but he can't hide. And in this episode, we'll make sure he can't hide the impact on African Americans all across this country. And we'll put him on full blast with a man who knows how to dissect issues of race, politics, social justice, and leadership. Baratunde Thurston is a powerful, inspiring, and dynamic next-generation thought leader. He's an activist, a futurist, a comedian, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black. He's worked for The Onion, he's produced for The Daily Show, he's advised the Obama White House, and he's cleaned bathrooms to pay for his Harvard education. Baratunde also serves on the board of BUILD, a nonprofit organization that uses entrepreneurship-based experiential learning to propel underserved youth through high school, onto college, and career success. He also serves on the Brooklyn Public Library Board of Trustees, and his TED Talk has over 2 million views. I've known Baratunde for over a decade, and we chopped it up for a fun, emotional, and inspiring conversation you'll want to talk about and share. Angry Americans is continuing our groundbreaking focus on the frontline fighters of the war against COVID-19 with another inspiring leader shaping the future of America. Baratunde is an inspiring, important, increasingly iconic American leader that I'm honored to call a friend of mine. We met almost 15 years ago when both of our exes were touring the New York live music scene. We had friends in common. And we were both trying to do some good. Baratunde is bold. He's brilliant. He's funny. He's strong. And he's changing the way America understands race and racism, our past and our future. He calls himself a futurist, and he has a clear heart and an optimism to see a better future for America, even in the face of a dark and nasty time. He'll help us understand, he'll help us reflect, and he'll help us commit to the future. He'll also share one of the most thoughtful and patriotic answers I've ever gotten on this show to the question of what his favorite drink is. He'll also share his first car, which is also unusual, and a peek into his newest project, which is disrupting the media in all the best ways possible. I talked to him on Zoom from where he's isolating in Los Angeles. He's cooking a ton and making all kinds of good trouble. Baratunde will take us to the front lines for a very real conversation about the very real anger he feels and many others feel. In recent episodes, we focused on how the pandemic is impacting the military, hospitals, sports, education, moms. Now, we'll focus on a group of people that spans all those others. About 13% of all Americans are black, but 27% of known COVID-19 deaths are black. But it's not just black people in America that are being hit hard. There are roughly 175,000 people in the Navajo Nation Reservation, which straddles Arizona, New Mexico, and a small corner of Utah. And the nation has seen 3,122 cases, a rate of nearly 18 cases per 1,000 people, and at least 100 people have died. 
If Navajo Nation were its own state, it would have the second highest per capita rate of confirmed positive coronavirus cases in the country, behind only New York. Many in the Native American community feel like history is repeating itself, and with good reason. In the late 1700s, smallpox wiped out an estimated more than 70% of Native peoples in all of North America. And many of the dead now are not old. A beloved high school coach who left behind five children was 42 years old. A carpenter died on Easter morning at age 34. A mother who competed in Native American pageants was only 28. And per usual, the dead in Navajo Nation also includes a high percentage of veterans. Larry Welch was an infantryman who proudly served in Operation Desert Storm at the 82nd Airborne. He was buried on what would have been his 60th birthday. And Larry's mother, Mary Ann, died just one day later. She was 82. They couldn't run from the virus. And in the war against the virus, race matters. And you can't run from it. But we'll dig into it. And we won't run from the hard issues, the hard questions, the hard choices. We'll run forward with good form and a mask on. We've got a way for you to take action, to empower yourself and others for the marathon race ahead. And we've got your phone calls and some fun news about a popular prior guest. But before we get to the conversation with Baratunde Thurston, we've got some miles to log. We're lacing up our sneakers. We're getting our best playlist ready, stretching out those hamstrings. Because some of you have been running nonstop. Some of you have only been running to and from the refrigerator. And some of you have been running to and from work on the front lines. And there are some issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And first up is the exhausting ultra marathon that never seems to end and won't be ending soon. It's no sprint. It's a marathon. It's our exhausting, draining, and ongoing war against the coronavirus. There are now 4.34 million confirmed infections worldwide, up from 3.7 just last week. And 1.4 million confirmed cases in the U.S. now, which is more than anywhere else in the world by over a million. Thanks to the failure of our president and a wide range of national and local leadership, America is on top, way out in front and expanding our lead at the top of the worst scoreboard in the world. America is number one in the world in confirmed cases. We came from behind, caught up to the pack, and now we have built an almost insurmountable lead. In the race to the top of coronavirus infection, America has become the Carl Lewis of pandemics. Also noteworthy, Russia has jumped to number two with 242,000 cases, more than a million less, but more than the UK, Spain, Italy, and now Brazil. They all have a full million cases less than the U.S. does. And in Mississippi, 56% of those cases are black. In Washington, D.C., it's 46%. In South Carolina, 41%. 1.4 million people across every state, Washington, D.C., and four U.S. territories have tested positive now for the virus. And 84,700 Americans are dead. That's much more now than the number of Americans that died in Vietnam, and twice the number that died in the Korean War, 84,700 dead that we know of, up from almost 75,000 last week. And most experts, including Dr. Fauci, 
think they're really much higher. But most of us feel that the number of deaths are likely higher than that number because given the situation, particularly in New York City, when they were really strapped with a very serious challenge to their healthcare system, that there may have been people who died at home who did have COVID, who were not counted as COVID because they never really got to the hospital. So in direct answer to your question, I think you are correct that the number is likely higher. I I don't know exactly what percent's higher, but almost certainly it's higher. Almost certainly higher than 84,700. We can't run from the numbers or the death toll or the mistakes of our president and so many others. 1.4 million people have now been infected in the United States. That's more than the entire population of the city of San Diego, California. More than the entire population of every city in America except the top seven. More than about half the countries on the planet. And COVID-19 is still the leading cause of death in America right now. And there's no running from that. Yet states are running to reopen nationwide. It's been faster than a Carl Lewis sprint. Only nine states are still in shutdown or restricted. Every other state is now either partially reopened or reopening soon. All across the country, states are opening up. The only states still shut down or restricted are Washington, California, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware. And most of the states reopening failed to meet the criteria laid out by the Trump administration before loosening restrictions on business and social activities. Of course, the White House guidelines are non-binding and ultimately leave states' fates to governors. Because Trump is only forceful with states around things like banning Muslims or messing with women's right to choose. When it comes to tackling a virus he failed to prepare for, go for it, states. Run with the ball. And the national virus whack-a-mole game is over before it really began. As cases continue to rise and Trump continues to push for the nation's doors to reopen, much of America hasn't beaten the virus. They've just given up. They think the worst has passed or they can handle it or it's no big deal or the sunshine is just too tempting. So spring is finally here for many states across the country. And as long as you're not in a meat plant, a prison, a Navy ship, a Native American reservation or a nursing home, you're going to be getting the green light soon. Your governor will tell you, go for it. Yeah, wear a mask if you want to, but go to the beach, get a tattoo, enjoy a foot rub, and host a keg party. But states like Florida and South Dakota have been banging on the drum of reopening. But here's a warning of what might be ahead of us from the head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is what we all fear, is a vicious cycle of public health disaster followed by economic disaster followed by public health disaster followed by economic disaster this virus may become just another endemic virus in our communities and this virus may never go away hiv has not gone away but we've come to terms with the virus and we have found the therapies and we've found the prevention methods and people don't feel as scared uh, as they did before and we're offering life to people with hiv long healthy lives to people with hiv Uh, And I'm not comparing the two diseases, but I think it is important that we're realistic. And I don't think anyone can predict when or if this disease will disappear. Nobody can predict when and if this disease will disappear, especially not President Mayhem. 
And as Americans are chomping at the bit like Secretariat, ready to race out in hopes that sunlight and prayers and wishful thinking will kill the virus as doors fly open nationwide, there's another important warning from a guy who's actually a very active runner himself. My concern is that if states or cities or regions, uh, in their attempt, understandable, to get back to some form of normality, disregard to a greater or lesser degree the checkpoints that we put in our guidelines about when it is safe to proceed in pulling back on mitigation. Because I feel if that occurs, there is a real risk that you will trigger an outbreak that you may not be able to control, which in fact, paradoxically, will set you back, not only leading to some suffering and death that could be avoided, but could even set you back on the road to trying to get economic recovery because it would almost turn the clock back rather than going forward. That is my major concern, Senator. That's, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the voice of reason in America, and possibly the man most likely to become the next General Mattis of the Trump administration. He's increasingly running out of step with Trump, and that can only lead him down two roads, capitulation and humiliation, like Jeff Sessions, or firing by Twitter, like former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, remember him, or resignation, like former Secretary Mattis, who would be nice to have around right about now, right, given the whole we're at war thing. But Fauci is contradicting Trump, which creates a predictable response from Trump and his enablers and his allies. Like stupidity antibodies attacking the virus of sanity, they swarm. They'll swarm anyone who opposes Trump, anyone, even Fauci, like this. Tony Fauci has not been elected to anything. He's had the same job for nearly 40 years. That means the majority of American voters never even indirectly picked him for the role he has now. This is not the result of any kind of democratic process at work at all. Yet in the last four months, Fauci has become one of the most powerful people in the world. And some, particularly in our media and in our Democratic establishment, are clamoring to give Dr. Fauci even more power. Yes, Tucker, he's been at the same job for 40 years, which makes him uniquely experienced. And since when did being elected matter? Nobody elected Jared Kushner or Ivanka, and many of them have more power than Fauci does. But Tucker Carlson is doing what Tucker Carlson does, sell out America's future in allegiance to Trumpism. And Trump? Trump's doing what Trump does. Dr. Fauci is playing both sides. Are you suggesting that the advice well, is given to you? I was different? surprised by his answer, actually, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, it's just, to me, it's not an acceptable answer, especially when it comes to schools. The only thing that would be acceptable, as I said, is professors, teachers, etc., over a certain age. I think they ought to take it easy for another few weeks, five weeks, four weeks, who knows, whatever it may be. But I think they have to be careful because... This is a a disease that attacks age, and it attacks health. And if you have a heart problem, if you have diabetes, if you're a certain age, uh, it's certainly uh, much more dangerous. But with the young children, I mean, uh, and students, it's really, it's uh, just take a look at the statistics. It's pretty amazing. What the hell is President Mayhem talking about there? Generally? I have no idea. But on that one specifically, he's punching back at Fauci, who had another very important warning to all the governors rushing to reopen as numbers continue to climb. We don't know everything about this virus. 
And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children. For example, right now, children presenting with COVID-19 COVID who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome, very similar to Kawasaki's syndrome. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. That's Fauci responding to renowned expert on being an asshole, Senator Rand Paul. So before you go out there and open up your state, your city, your school, you better realize the virus is faster than you. The virus is faster than all of us. So you can listen to Rand Paul, an ophthalmologist and one of the world's leading assholes, or you can listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci, an immunologist and one of the world's leading experts on infectious diseases. Rand Paul, the guy who got the virus and still went to the Senate gym, risking infecting others, the guy who was delivering his remarks there from inside a crowded Senate building with no mask on, or Dr. Fauci, who was testifying via Zoom from his home filled with books for smart guys. Fauci knows the virus drives the tempo. And if you run to open, you might soon be running to close again soon and running in circles. We might have a spring fling of openings and a plateau in cases, but that spring fling and maybe even a summer of fun could result in a brutal fall and an even more brutal winter. The darkest winter in modern history. That's what America could face unless leaders act decisively to prevent a rebound of the coronavirus. That's what immunologist Dr. Rick Bright warned this week. He's a government whistleblower who says he was ousted from his job after warning the Trump administration to prepare for the pandemic. Darkest winter in modern history. That's his warning before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. It's easy to go running in the spring. The weather is nice. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. But running in the winter, it's hard. It requires serious gear, serious shoes, and serious grit. Or it requires a treadmill which is what it's going to feel like if Trump and the rest of these knuckleheads don't take the time and focus to get it right now. Because Trump really does think he can run out the clock. He can rush to open. He can get things moving. He can get the stock market up. He can win the election and he can be rocking and rolling in just a few months. But he only feels that way because he's infected so many now nationwide. The super spreader himself has achieved part of his goal, pushing for reopening so hard that eventually some people just think it's a good idea or that it's a necessary evil. Even if it kills countless World War II veterans, even if it kills countless moms, even if it potentially kills kids, and even if it kills tens of thousands of black people all across America. It jeopardizes the future of our country and it preys on the weak. It preys on the people's needs to jeopardize the health of others and the future of our seniors and maybe our kids. No, it's not the coronavirus. It continues to be the most serious, ferocious, deadly, and vexing disease in America. The stupid. Yes, the stupid. It's rising in power in numbers faster than spring flowers. It might feel like March and May. It actually snowed in New York last week in May. But the stupid is racing faster than the cheetah where now only one in five states in America are staying at home and being careful. Only one in five states have leadership that would rather be safe than sorry. In the marathon race to beat the virus, only one in five would rather be the tortoise than the hare. 
in four out of five states in America has leadership that's trying to kill the rest of us. Needless to say, most of these states have white governors, but most of those states have fairly diverse populations, populations that, of course, want to open, but also want to live. So in the rush and race to reopen, I hope I'm wrong. But in the near future, the pendulum will swing back. And at least some states, some cities will be running, not for the beaches or the tattoo parlors, but to the doors. Most of the leading scientists in America are urging him to back away from the starting line. Keep his cars in the pit. Don't rush out. But this is Trump. And in his administration, every day is opposite day. So no, we're not shutting down. No, we're not waiting. We're not watching the data. We're not being smart. No, this is the world of Trump 2020. So the race is on. Daytona International Speedway, we love our country, and it's truly an honor to be with all of you at the great American race. Gentlemen, start your engines. The race is fully on. Racers are jockeying for position, maxing their pit crews, pulling out every trick in the book to push forward to the front of the pack. And the pack is thick, and the race to the front of the pack is intense. And they're not just rushing for a glorious finish. They're rushing away from the virus. But it's catching up with all of them. And so is the stupid. It ran them down in Congress. It chased them down in the media. It lapped them in the Navy. It smoked them in governor's offices nationwide. And it easily lapped them at the protests at state capitals in Michigan and nationwide. So there's no running from the stupid. And while I'm inclined to consider making Senator Rand Paul our first ever repeat award winner, He was overshadowed by so many other incredible demonstrations of the stupid. Maybe, most of all, a leader who never disappoints when it comes to stupid. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. And the Washington Post had the story. President Trump and Esper gathered with World War II veterans in Washington to mark the 75th anniversary of the Allied victory in Europe. Well, isn't that great? But Trump greeted a rank of seven veterans one by one, but from a distance of only a few feet. Apparently mindful of coronavirus concerns, sort of, but not wearing a mask, and a White House television pool had video of the entire event. The veterans were not wearing masks. And Esper, also without a mask, gathered in front of a few of the men for a photo, and just a few minutes earlier had been handing out challenge coins from his pocket. At one point, a veteran grasps his elbow. All this while the Pentagon, the agency that Esper leads, has mandated the wearing of masks for service members, agency employees, and family on Defense Department grounds. So everyone in the department has to do it, but not the secretary. And the veterans ranged in age from 96 to 100. And we all know older people are at particular risk of illness and death if they get the virus, with 80% of U.S. deaths recorded in people over the age of 65. So Esper was there with Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert Wilkie, who, of course, didn't wear a mask either. They both should have worn masks. They both should have kept their distance. But, of course, they did not. They can't be bothered to abide by the CDC guidelines, guidelines that are designed to keep the elderly safe. The White House had a statement and said the veterans in attendance were, quote, choosing nation over self, whatever the hell that means. 
And Esper and Wilkie joined other administration officials who have appeared in public without masks, including Trump and Vice President Pence, who has now acknowledged he should have worn a mask at the Mayo Clinic. But Esper appeared to take some precautions, but then was kind of even. He bumped one veteran elbow as a greeting only after the veteran offered it first. And other times he trying to sort of keep his distance. But the photo opportunity put him within inches of veterans. And check this out. The Pentagon referred any questions from the press about the event to the Friends of the National World War II Memorial, which the Pentagon says was the organizer of the event. The nonprofit group, which is dedicated to preserving history, was not involved and has partnered with the DOD only on pre-recorded video messages featuring World War II veterans. The group has actually opted to call veterans and interview them on video remotely because of coronavirus concerns. Holly Rotondi is the executive director, and she said, We take the safety of our World War II veterans very seriously. Of course the risk is too great to put their health in jeopardy. So this is all as Pence's press secretary has confirmed that she tested positive for the coronavirus and a military valet for Trump also tested positive. So all these people were all around each other. So there's Wilkie and Esper shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of old veterans without a mask. And needless to say, Wilkie's spokesperson did not return requests for comment. This is also as VA has stopped providing any information about the ages of veterans who've been dying at its hospital. So Esper and Trump and Wilkie were all out there trying to look cool, but instead they look like fools. And President Mayhem, of course, of course, had a uniquely ridiculous response when he was pressed on it by the media. Mr. President, you were with seven American heroes earlier today, these uh, World War II veterans, all in their in their 90s. Did you consider wearing a mask when you were with them, given their... No, because I was very far away. I appreciate the question. Uh, I was very far away from them, as you know. Uh, I would have loved to have gone up and hugged them because they're great. I had a conversation with everyone, but we were very far away. You saw, uh, plus the wind was blowing so hard in such a direction that if if the plague ever reached them, I'd be very surprised. It could have reached me, too. You didn't worry about me. You only worried about them, and that's okay, because I think they're so pure it will never happen, all right? They've lived... Uh, a great life. But uh, now the wind was uh, howling and I didn't see anybody with masks. I don't know. Maybe there were. Uh, but uh, they were uh, they were great. I had conversations with them, but I was standing, as you noticed. Would you say I was quite far away? No, he wasn't far away. There's video. There's actual video. We can look at it and see how not far away he was. And no, the wind will not save them from the virus any more than hydroxychloroquine will or hot weather. It's just the latest crazy idea to come out of Trump's infected brain. The wind will not save you from the virus. They should have let the old vets stay home. Listen to the CDC. Listen to Dr. Fauci. Listen to Common Sense. And listen to the police. But they didn't. And as badly as I want to give Esper the award this week, I just can't. Because there's actually someone more deserving. Republicans aren't the only ones infected with the stupid. This is a show where independents should feel welcome. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I reject both parties. And the stupid doesn't. The stupid is happy to infect both sides and everybody in between. And for the last six years, Long before the coronavirus hit, the stupid has infected my home city in severe ways, and most ferociously, inside City Hall, and inside the feeble mind of our mayor, a man 
who outside of Trump is more responsible for the American pandemic disaster than anyone. A man who was slow to respond, slow to shut the city down, but quick to go to the gym himself. A man who routinely attacks the press, dismisses his critics, and arrogantly attempts to convey that he's awesome. Every week, he finds new and creative ways to display his stunning level of stupidity. But this week, as New York City continues to lead the world in infections and deaths, our mayor remains stunningly out of touch. Over 20,000 residents of New York City have died. But amazingly, this is what the mayor revealed this week. No, uh, I, I haven't been tested this whole time. And we certainly from the perspective of City Hall, there's not a regular testing program. We uh, do our best to you know, take the precautions that we talk about with everyone. And, um, you know, there's there's not a regular testing protocol. There is a devotion to trying to be careful. We have a skeleton class, uh, staff here. Obviously, City Hall is usually, well, you know, well, Rich, a place that buzzes with activity. And uh, it's really quiet nowadays. Comparatively, there's a core group of people here doing a whole lot of hard work and working closely with our colleagues and agencies all over the city. Um, but no, there has not been a need for testing on any greater level. He hasn't been tested the whole time. The whole time. If you've heard this show, you know how I feel about Democrat Mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio. Now you can see why. He's a failure. He's a disaster. But unfortunately, he's not scheduled to be out of office until the end of next year. That's why I think he should be impeached now. Impeach de Blasio. We can't afford to have this man leading the largest city in America, the city hit hardest by the pandemic, for another year and a half. If he fails, we're all at risk, not just people in New York. And for this response from de Blasio and all his tone-deaf, spectacularly stupid and amazing failures as a leader, I am proud to finally present Mayor Bill de Blasio with this song and the award that goes with it. It's his first time but I'm sure it won't be his last. It's still early in 2020, but as the Tony Romo of predicting stupid in politics, I predict he's got the inside track on being the champion for the entire year. We might have to name the damn award after him because nobody is more deserving than de Blasio. Hit it, Bill. I drive really slow in the ultra fast lane while people behind me are going Because we're all just trying to survive. Black, white, old, young, New Yorker, Californian. We're all just trying to make the best of this. We're all just trying to survive. And we're all just riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. We are just riders on that storm. And that storm is hitting new places every day across America. But it's also hitting other parts of the world. And there are other things actually happening that impact our national defense. And especially on issues of national security, the stakes have never been higher.
When he's not high-fiving 96-year-old veterans, Defense Secretary Esper actually has something to say about the pandemic that was pretty important. He said this week, we're preparing for a second wave and maybe more. We don't know the trajectory of what this virus will be. My view is that we'll be at it. We'll be at this for a number of months, at least until we get a vaccine. And while Trump whines about Fauci and cooks up conspiracy theories about Barack Obama, a forever war drags on and fighting continues in places like Afghanistan. In Afghanistan or Afghanistan, the attacks haven't continued just because of the pandemic. And there were especially brutal attacks this week at a maternity ward and a funeral. It continues to underscore how the people of Afghanistan are in peril from the moment they're born, even after they're dead. In one of the most horrifying incidents in my life, three militants stormed a hospital in Kabul, shooting new mothers dead before the newborns in their arms had even seen the light of the outside. At least 15 people were killed inside the hospital. Babies, mothers, medical workers, and a cop. And as security forces scrambled in Kabul, about 100 miles away to the east, a suicide bomber walked into a funeral for a local police chief. And as hundreds of locals were lined up in front of the body for the final prayer, the bomber blew himself up not far from the corpse. The explosion killed at least 25 and wounded scores of others. So if you want really good reason to be angry, know that this week people attacked newborn babies and new mothers. It's the lowest of the low. And these same insurgents have refused calls for a humanitarian ceasefire to let the country combat the rapidly spreading coronavirus. Now, Afghanistan has officially recorded 5,000 cases of COVID-19, but the spread's probably much wider than that. So between the toll and the virus, the country continues to get hit hard. And 80% of the population lives barely above the poverty line. So there's fear that the economic shockwaves are just going to keep coming and the pandemic could bring starvation and worse. So overseas, the virus continues to rampage on our ships and among our allies and among civilians caught in the crossfire. But back home, our Department of Defense is at least continuing to give us a bit of a boost as the Blue Angels and Thunderbirds continue their tours nationwide. They started out in New York, Newark, Trenton, Philly. Then they went to D.C., Atlanta, Baltimore, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, New Orleans, then Miami and Jacksonville. And now they flew over Detroit, Chicago and Indianapolis. And coming up, Nashville and Little Rock, all cities that have been hit hard or maybe hit hard soon. And coming up, I'll talk to Baratunde Thurston about how hard black people across America have been hit in those cities especially and nationwide. And it'll make you angry. But almost nothing will make you more angry than how veterans continue to be decimated by the virus worldwide. As I've covered in every episode since this hit, the greatest generation of World War II veterans continues to be hit again and again and again by the virus. And the total for the VA is now hit almost 1,000. That's just in two months. The total number of cases in VA facilities hit almost 12,000. But here's some interesting news. The VA had a warning this week. They said African-American and Hispanic veterans may face bigger risks from the coronavirus. Now, VA being VA declined to provide any specific data whatsoever showing the trend. But 
They're now confirming that African-American and Hispanic veterans may be at bigger risk for the coronavirus, just like they are across the civilian population. And this is big news. So watch this space. Meanwhile, Secretary of Veterans Affairs Robert Wilkie is continuing to do weird shit. This week, he celebrated the fact that he had to get 500,000 masks from South Korea. He said he had plenty of materials. He said they had everything they need. But now we're getting 500,000 masks from South Korea, and he's tweeting about it? Every day in the Trump administration is opposite day. He wrote on Twitter, The Republic of Korea's generous gift to America's veterans is deeply appreciated, and we humbly accept. We will use it to carry our solemn mission of caring for our veterans. And he posted a picture of a bunch of people in masks receiving masks. You know who could have used those masks a few months ago? The veterans in the Holyoke Soldiers' Home. If you've been tracking over the last couple episodes, you know that the numbers continue to climb. And now the death toll is at 88 veterans. 88 veterans are now dead at the Soldiers' Home in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And veterans' homes across the country continue to get slammed. 28 are now dead in St. John's Parish in New Orleans. In Paramus, New Jersey, the number of dead is now up to 74. They only had 314 residents in the whole place, so 60% of the patients were infected. There was a big New York Times piece that laid it out, making national news. So finally, people are starting to pay attention. And it highlighted a particularly tragic story. The story of Thomas Mastro Pietro. He got nerve damage in his arm while serving in the Army during the Korean War. But his death was followed by a final indignity. Mastro Pietro was 91 and apparently wearing an identification for another man when his body arrived at the funeral home. So on April 11th, the day that he died, his son was told by an aide that his father had rebounded. His fever was down, his son said he was told, and he even had the strength to walk to the bathroom on his own. But hours later, another call came. His father had been misidentified days before when he was moved into the home's COVID ward. The elder Master Pietro had died and his body had been taken to the wrong funeral home. A worker there noticed his wrist bracelet had two different names, and his son had to deal with that. Somehow it happened, he said, but it really shouldn't have. It definitely shouldn't have, but it continues to happen elsewhere. In Stony Brook, New York, 57 veterans are dead there now, and veterans have died in Richmond, Virginia, West Palm Beach, Florida, Rowan County, North Carolina, Scarborough, Maine, East Vincent Township, Pennsylvania, Floresville, Texas, Oxford, New York, Reserve, Louisiana, Bristol, Rhode Island, and more, including in Alabama, where at least 90 veterans in the Bill Nichols State Veterans Home in Alexander City have tested positive, and 22 have died. And finally, some politicians are trying to make some noise, at least. The Senate's top Democrat, Chuck Schumer, used his Sunday press conference, he does these Sunday press conferences that I call Sunday Schumers, to announce different initiatives. And this week, he's called on the Department of Veterans Affairs to explain why it allowed the use of an unproven drug on veterans with the coronavirus. We've talked about this before. The VA apparently has been using veterans as guinea pigs. And Schumer said the VA needs to provide Congress with more information about a recent bulk order of $208,000 worth of hydroxychloroquine. You know, if you listen to the show, you know Trump has repeatedly pushed a drug and VA Secretary Robert Wilkie did the same when he was on MSNBC with Stephanie Rule and in countless other press appearances. Wilkie doubles down on Trump's push that hydroxychloroquine works. 
And Wilkie repeatedly declines to say how widely the drug was being used and whether the department had any guidance for doctors and patients on the use of the drug. Now, he dismissed the recent analysis of VA hospital data, his own VA hospital data, showing no benefits to the patients whatsoever. He suggested that the outcomes were poor because the veterans were older and very sick. And he won't say whether the department will continue to use the drug or not. But here's the bottom line. 28% of veterans who were given hydroxychloroquine plus usual care died versus 11% getting routine care alone. So Wilkie and Trump continue to use vets as guinea pigs and push a drug that has no proven benefits, while the FDA last month warned doctors against prescribing the drug for COVID-19 outside of hospitals because of the serious risks of side effects and death. So if you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. But there's another area that, frankly, a lot of folks don't seem to be paying that much attention to. That's the race for president. So there's actually not that much big news about the election right now. Trump is falling behind in most of the national polls, but hanging in in some battleground states. And Biden has a lead over Trump that now stands at five points. According to a new CNN poll, 51% of registered voters back Biden, while 46% prefer Trump. Now, in battlegrounds, 52% favor Trump and 45% favor Biden. Now, obviously, the people are really entrenched in their own parties, but the two are pretty close among independents. 50% are backing Trump and 46% are backing Biden. Not a huge difference, but that's the number to watch. And Vice President Biden continues to hold a big lead among people of color, with 69% for him and 26% for Trump. And so Operation Basement Biden is in full effect. He's hunkered down and he's trying to stay safe, but he's been reactive. He's behind on money. He's struggling to get traction, but he is taking some shots like this new ad. Early January, Donald Trump is first warned of the virus. He ignores it. We have it totally under control. It's uh, gonna be just fine. Defends the Chinese government instead. January 30th. Trump's own cabinet secretary warns of a pandemic, raising concerns that the Chinese government isn't being transparent. Trump calls him an alarmist. We think we have it very well under control. We're working very closely with China and other countries, and we think it's going to have a very good ending for us. The next day, the Dow plummets 600 points. Desperate to protect the stock market from sliding further, Trump continues to deny the threat and praise the Chinese government. We're doing great in our country, China. I spoke with President Xi, and they're working very, very hard. And I think it's going to all work out fine. And that's what Biden needs more of if he's going to win, because Trump has the bully pulpit more than ever, and he might have some tricks up his sleeve. The biggest news has to do with someone who's not even running and not even elected. And I'm not talking about Jesse Ventura. I'm talking about Jared Kushner, who in a recent interview with Time stirred up concerns, fear, and considerable anger with these comments. Is there any scenario, including a second outbreak in the fall where the elections move past November 3rd? Uh, that's too far in the future to tell. Nothing that I'm aware of now. But uh, again, our focus right now is just on getting well, the country. Will you commit that the elections will happen on November 3rd? 
Uh, it's not my decision to make, so I, I'm not sure I can commit one way or the other. But right now, that's the plan. And uh, again, hopefully, by the time we get to you know September, October, November, we've done enough work with testing and with uh, and with all the different things we're trying to do to uh, prevent a future uh, outbreak of the magnitude that would make us shut down again. I really believe that once America opens up, uh, it'll be very hard for America to ever lock down again. Is the president committed to debating uh, former Vice President Biden? I think he's looking forward to it. So Kushner basically said he wasn't sure if there would be an election in November because of the coronavirus and that he had some kind of role in making that determination. Well, newsflash, the Congressional Research Service says the text of the Constitution does not appear to contain a constitutional role for the executive branch in such decisions. So although Kushner thinks he may rule the world, he is not having an impact on the election without a hell of a fight. But watch this space, because there are plenty of people who would like to ensure that plenty of other people don't have access to vote, especially people of color. The race for president, the race from the virus, the race for your sanity, it all can be exhausting. But I always tell you to look for the helpers. That's a theme of this show, especially now. We're in a time, a true renaissance time for helpers, where we see some of the greatest helpers of our life emerging, old, young, and everywhere in between. And that includes some of our former guests on this show. The great Wes Moore, friend of the pod and CEO of Robinhood, had a tremendous week leading helpers across the country to step up and support New York City. Tina Fey hosted the event that raised $115 million to support New Yorkers impacted by coronavirus. West did a brilliant job and galvanized support from people like Barbara Streisand, Jennifer Lopez, Michael Strahan, Eli Manning, Robert De Niro, got them all together for a one-hour television benefit that was presented by the New York-based poverty-fighting organization Robin Hood and iHeartMedia. All these donations will provide food, shelter, cash assistance, mental health, legal services, and education. Tina Fey started out by saying, if you had breakfast today, you're better off than two million of your neighbors who woke up hungry. And Mariah Carey crushed it. She performed her 1992 song, Make It Happen. And she sang while her backup singers and her pianists performed on separate screens to an upbeat tune. And she said, we can make it together. New York, I know we're strong enough to get through this. We will rise again. We can do this together. I can make it through the rain. I can stand up once again on my own. And I know that I'm strong enough to Dina Menzel, Ben Platt, they all came together with Phil Simms, Justin Tuck, John Bon Jovi, and Billy Joe closed it out after being introduced by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. 
The performance was simultaneously also shown on 13 of Times Square's digital billboard, and a choreographed light show debuted at the Empire State Building that will repeat at 9 p.m. Eastern throughout the week. And at the end, Tina Fey got emotional, and for good reason. Okay, let's look at what we've done tonight. The envelope, please. Is this real? Okay. $115 million. We did this. You did this. We are difference makers. $115 million. What a great day for New York. Thank you to everyone who gave and gave and gave from all over the world. Tina Fey was understandably emotional. We're all a little emotional and we're all a little nostalgic. And speaking of nostalgia, there's good news about a different kind of helper. Someone we need now more than ever. Yes, G.I. Joe is back. And just in time for you to share with your kids, your spouse, or your Zumba Zoom group. And Hollywood Reporter had the exclusive. They learned that Hasbro has just re-released episodes of the 1980s G.I. Joe, a real American hero animated series on YouTube. 15 episodes include the first five-part miniseries, The Mass Device and Revenge of the Cobra, and the first five-part series of season one, The Pyramid of Darkness. There's also another G.I. Joe movie coming. Paramount and Hasbro is rolling more snake eyes. G.I. Joe is trying to spin off Snake Eyes, the character from the show, with his own movie. Snake Eyes is going to star Crazy Rich Asians breakout star Henry Golding as the most popular and mysterious member of the elite anti-terrorist group known as G.I. Joe. When I was a kid, everybody wanted to be Snake Eyes. I often ended up being Roadblock, but I definitely wanted to be Snake Eyes. So the G.I. Joe is coming, and G.I. Joe is out there. The helpers are out there, white, black, brown, all races, all people, together as one, just like in G.I. Joe. They're all the heroes and the helpers we need. And so is Baratunde Thurston. Bust the rhyme now, M.O.P. now, what you want now, what you want now, what you want now, what you want now. As the global war against the virus continues, our president continues to divide us by party, by state, and often most maliciously by race. He rips at the fabric of our country daily. But many push back, and some push back fiercely, and few do it more fiercely than Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde was born in Washington, D.C., and he grew up in the Columbia Heights neighborhood. His father was killed when he was young and his mother worked in the office of the Comptroller of the Currency. He went to Sidwell Friends in D.C. and Harvard, where he graduated with a degree in philosophy. He's a writer, comedian, commentator. He co-founded the black political blog Jack and Jill Politics that covered the 2008 National Convention and was archived in the Library of Congress. He was digital director for The Onion, and his 2012 book, How to Be Black, became a New York Times bestseller. 
He's been nominated for an Emmy. He's worked for The Onion, The Daily Show. He's advised the White House, and he hosts the iHeartMedia podcast Split. And he's out there all the time, making media, delivering keynote speeches, driving action with a really unique blend of criticism, humor, and optimism. And he's always focused on the topics of race, technology, democracy, and climate. Because, as he says, the hard stuff's already been solved, right? From the beginning, Baratunde was taught to question authority and make his own path. His great-grandfather taught himself how to read. His grandmother was the first black employee at the U.S. Supreme Court. And his mother was a computer programmer who took over radio stations in the name of the black liberation struggle. And his older sister teaches yoga at a donation-based studio in Lansing, Michigan. You'll hear more about that. But beyond just doing media, Baratunde has helped defining its future. From The Onion to The Daily Show to the MIT Media Lab. And in 2012, he co-founded Cultivated Wit, a comedic digital company on a quest to merge comedy and technology into a new genre of creative expression. The company created Comedy Hack Day, where developers and comedians work together to make intentionally funny tech projects that humanize technology while pushing social commentary on the world at large. The ACLU of Michigan honored Baratunde for changing the political and social landscape one laugh at a time. He was nominated for the Bill Hicks Award for Thought-Provoking Comedy, and The Root named him to its list of the 100 most influential African Americans, and Fast Company named him one of the most creative people in business. And angry Americans, we want to continue our groundbreaking focus on frontline thought leaders in the war against COVID-19. And Baratunde is another important and inspiring guest shaping the future. He's driving the future of race, politics, tech, humor, and civic action. He's a voice for the voiceless, and especially for so many young black men and women who are working and fighting every day for a better life and to make this country a better place. And in this episode, we're racing forward. With the integrity of Edwin Moses, with the information of Carl Lewis, with the inspiration of Michael Johnson, and with the massive impact of Jesse Owens. Welcome to an exploration of being black in the coronavirus. Welcome to race in the pandemic. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 59. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, we have a very, very, very special, important, uh, inspiring, and iconic guest joining us today, a guy I've been dying to talk to ever since I started this podcast, a guy that I have tremendous admiration for, and a guy who's just super fun to talk to and watch do good shit. The great and powerful Baratunde Thurston is joining us. How are you, my friend? Hello, Paul. I am doing so well. Thank you for that exceptional introduction, raising the bar a wee bit. Inspirational, important, and inspiring. That's three eyes. Uh, but I appreciate it. And it's so good to be here with you. I, I've been loving the show and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thanks. Thanks, man. So we go way back in different ways. But the question I want to start with that I've been asking everybody is, yes. Baratunde, where are you and how are you? Paul, I am in my home 
in the Highland Park neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Uh, I'm in a, a room, basically like a shed <laughs> connected to the garage. And I have a view of uh, the trees and the squirrels who I like to keep an eye out for because they really try to raid the fruit supply back there. And I'm, I'm working on that. I am doing okay. I'm in a, um, I'm healthy. I have a, a smidgen of optimism and my soul left in mm. me, uh, despite attempts by circumstances, national leadership, the nation to extract all those good things from my body and my heart. And I, I'm on an up and down with you know, the COVID, uh, but I'm healthy. The people closest to me are also healthy. And I'm fortunate enough to have a stable, rel- relatively stable physical and emotional space to inhabit as we are asked to stay safe at home. I think you're the first person I've talked to in Los Angeles since the pandemic hit. You know, you're, you're a guy who has a really good feel for the conversation happening around you and the communities around you. Um, you've got a really, I think, exceptional feel for culture and, and for conversation and for energy. What, what, what do you feel like it's like in LA right now? Like LA has been hit harder now than some of the earlier cities like Seattle and New York. What, what, what do you think it's like in LA right now? So I think there's, there's a bit of gratitude in LA that we didn't get hit as hard as New York. I mean, New York set such a high bar for pain and suffering and drama. Um, and we have, we've not been New Orleans. We've not been some of these meatpacking centers in the nation with the denial. So we've got above average leadership in the county and the city and in the state. And I feel fortunate to happen to coincide with good leadership um, and to vote for them when I can. But I'm new here. I just moved from New York last year. So I have some still loyalty to New York City, but I'm, what I feel and what I've sensed is partially gratitude that things aren't much worse. Nervousness, however, at what's to come. Uh, my fiance has been leading an effort, uh, Elizabeth, on getting PPE out to health workers. And there are people doing this in cities all across the country through many efforts. This one's called Last Mile PPE. And so watching her do that, I'm proud and I'm mm. irritated. Mm. You know, I'm like, I'm so proud that like she stepped up and all these other inexperienced but capable and dedicated volunteers have stepped up. And I'm pissed. I'm angry to the name of the show. And I'm irritated that anybody has to do that. And so that tension of gratitude and anger, I think, is also permeating LA and the county, mm. uh, because we don't have the huge death numbers. There's an impatience with the stay at home because this is an area where people go outside a lot. They drive their cars. There are mountains and hiking trails and beaches for the joy of going out. And then this is a highly unequal county and city in terms of income and housing affordability. So there's nervousness about how am I going to pay rent? How am I going to get my rent covered by my tenants? I really need to go back to work. It's not just that I want to and screw everybody's health. It's like how my, my survival is much more economically tied up than with the COVID thing for, for a lot of people. And, uh, and because it's so beautiful and sunny in Southern California, it doesn't feel threatening. <laughs> you know, We don't live in shadow, like we live in sunlight and it's a very discordant image to have it be like 80s and 90s. And it's just so quiet. And you yeah. hear the occasional helicopter we don't have the siren noises so much. It's just, it's a little on edge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, LA's kind of been good at social distancing before it was needed. I mean, especially <laughs> when you go from New York to LA, 
you yeah. feel like everybody's kind of in their own little bubble where they're in their car and then they go to their, their, their gym and then they go to their hike. But I felt like LA is kind of like pre-designed to do social distancing well with the exception of like paparazzi and, you know, clubs or whatever. But, um, but that struggle is, 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 is unique. Right. And because like you're, you're in LA to be outside, like you are the beach, and I, the beach is calling, right? Like it's, it's out there, there calling. There's a social level, right? So New York, you know, I was just there. I lived in a 600 square foot apartment with another person who I love very much, but I could not imagine going through this. Yeah. There. I mean, I would have done it. We would have made it. Many millions of people are figuring it out, but I just feel luxuriously grateful that we got a little more space because mm. we're renting a house and that makes a difference. But what's tough as well, like, yes, LA is more isolated and like atomized, but people hang, like people visit each other at each other's homes. You have dinner parties and lawn parties and barbecues and street fairs and there's farmer's markets and there's bars and restaurants. And every city in this country depends on bars and restaurants. Mm. Um, And it's such a weird absence to to not have a gather, to not be able to physically gather, mm. it's, it's, start, it's grating on me. Like I'm a very social person and Zoom is, you know, bless them, right? It's like, it's better than nothing, yeah. but it leaves a lot to be desired. Um, and so that is the sharing space with other humans uh, doesn't seem stereotypically Los Angeles, but it is just in a different way from New York and, and we're missing it as much, I think. Well, we're going to try to have a, a connection today. I'm sorry we can't have a drink in person, but the first question I always ask of everyone, yes. and, and I've been very excited because I, I know your answer, but I want you to share with the audience. Baratunde Thurston, what is your adult beverage or drink of choice and why? My adult beverage of choice is the old fashioned. And um, there are several reasons why. The shortest version is I have a personal history with whiskey. Mm. Um, it was the first cocktail I truly learned how to make and it's a very flexible drinking platform. So let me like get into all that. So I, I started drinking late in life. I didn't drink in college. I wasn't anti. I just thought I'm social and fun enough. I was a little nervous. What would happen if I started drinking booze? So it was much later. And it was actually when I worked for the onion, uh, 2007, I started working there, just got into New York and we had these internal office events called whiskey Friday. And our head of design, a guy named Rick, he kept a bottle of Jameson in his desk and he would bust it out on Fridays and we would stop by his office because he had the most space and the best design space. He was a designer and he'd share his whiskey. So that became more of a thing. We started bringing our own bottles. We started inviting friends. I branded it. I like literally bought a domain name for whiskeyfriday.com. I hashtagged it because that's what I did at the time. And I got brands to come in. I brought McAllen in. I bought Johnny Walker in. And so it became this thing and it, it sort of wet my appetite um, for that drink. And so as I grew and learned, it's like, well, you, what, what can you do with this? And the old fashioned, one of the first cocktails, so simple, whiskey, rye, bitters, a sugar cube or some kind of sweetener yep. and uh, an appeal of orange. Now there's a lot of schools about how you make an old fashioned, what kind of whiskey, what kind of fruit. Uh, there are some heretical monsters in this world who put crushed ice in the whiskey with like a chunk of orange and a cherry for some reason. Mm. Uh, and those people should uh, lose their license you know, to, to make beverages or to consume them. They're just irresponsible citizens. And I don't, I don't <laughs> abide that. Uh, so I'm from the school of simplicity. 
and uh, and I've started to learn. So I, I love this drink because I think it lets me express myself. Mm. I, I started with sugar. The very first old fashioned I made, I did it on um, Snapchat, actually, I, in Fort Greene in New York. And I was like, I went to the local bodega, I bought a bag of that Domino sugar, and I had some random bourbon. And now I've like, I, I make my own syrup when I'm re- feeling into it. Wow. You know? um, but I think the, the last reason I, I called it like a, a platform, like an open platform. Yeah. I learned later in my drinking career, you don't have to use rye or bourbon, or even whiskey. You can, an old fashioned originally was like any liquor mm. and bitters and sweetener. And that's it. And so a mezcal old fashioned is my favorite version Ooh. of the old fashioned. And I hit it with an orange slice. I hit it with some maple syrup. That's my sweetener of choice. And I'm not feeling all like artisanal and making things. Because I'm so, I don't know about you, but I'm very tired of making my own food now. Yes. <laughs> I've cooked everything in yes. the New York Times cooking app and then random Reddit forums as well. Like I'm a full spectrum chef. Uh, but I like the ability to make this drink from many ingredients. And so to symbolically, it, uh, it feels like the best of America. It mm. feels like the best of humanity to have some principles, right? Okay, there's liquor. There's bitters, there's orange, there's sweetener. But then how you execute against those principles, like how you operationalize the values, is totally up to you. And that's almost like a federal system of drinking. And so I think the old fashioned is like the most small D democratic cocktail that there is. And it's a people powered drink, you know, and it's up to each of us to kind of find our way while adhering to the core principles that unite us as drinkers. Amazing. I have to, I have to toast to that. I, I asked you if you would bring one. I made it a really is. crappy one. I didn't think of syrup and I just threw a bunch of shit in a glass. And, uh, but I'm trying to make a, a Manhattan. It does no, ju- uh, sorry, an old fashioned rather. Yeah. It does no justice to yours, but do you have a toast? You have a, you have a, you have a, you know, there's a, there's a lot of Tunde's that you have, you have, you have a, you have a vowel. We'll talk about that. I think in, in a minute or two, but, but do you have a toast to Tunde or, you know, I, um, I have had this history of like hashtagging my own name and yes. Tunde is a great suffix for yes. words. There's a whiskey Tunde. Yes. We can have a drink of Tunde. Um, and sure, we, let's do a toast of Tunde. And, and I would propose a toast because I think you're, I know, in fact, you're in this spirit. I want to toast to we versus me. Mm. Um, we over me. I think we're in this beautiful, challenging moment where a test is being applied to all of us. Like, are we looking out just for ourselves as individuals? Or are we looking out for ourselves as a collective? And I'm on team us. I'm on team mm. collective. I'm on team we. Mm. And so a toast to we. To we. To we. There you go. Salute. Salute and salancha and uh, santé. Thank you, my friend. So we, we, we were trying to track down how we met and we met long ago in, in a political galaxy far, far away. Um, but we met, I think, initially because, um, you know, you, we, we had a connection in the music industry. This is how I think it was. And then that, that, that connection, my uh, ex-girlfriend and your ex-wife played yeah. in the same venue and they were both fantastically talented. Yeah. And then we knew some friends in common. You, ha- you went to Harvard and you were there when I had some friends that were there. We had other friends in Brooklyn in, in the broader community. You also grew up in DC yeah. and went to Sidwell, the f- famous, infamous Sidwell friends. 
Um, yeah, famous, but, famous for being the school where I went to. Absolutely. Right, right. <laughs> Among others. Uh, <laughs> and, and so when you were back in D.C., the other question I want to ask you that I ask of all our guests, Baratunde, yeah. is Baratunde Thurston, what was your first car? Oh, Paul, that's uh, the way you set up the question creates a very simple answer. Mm. Nothing. I did not have a car in D.C. Wow. I was born and raised in the nation's capital, this place of uh, taxation without representation, this surf-like environment that we tolerate in our so-called democratic republic. And uh, my mother made very clear to me, of modest means we were, that I would drive a car when I could buy a car. Mm. And so that created uh, what we call an upper bound uh, on my prospects as a teenager. And, you know, I went to the Sidwell Friends School, which had a lot of kids who did have cars yeah. even before they could drive them. They were just like ready. They had cars in waiting. Yeah. And they, had, they and, were probably uh, driven also. Yeah. And what I had was um, subway pass and bus tokens um, and then eventually a bus pass. And I wielded those like a Mustang. You know, I was like really, really good with the DC Metro, but I never did. I didn't even learn how to drive Paul until after I graduated high school, hmm. after I graduated college. So I got my driver's license when I was 21 or 22 years old in Boston. I learned to drive in Boston, which makes me the world's most aggressive take no shit driver. <laughs> Because Boston people don't give a damn about you. Right. And so that was my, my training wheels were in the mean streets of Boston. Wow. And so there, um, you know, I grew up with my mom's cars as a passenger. She had a, a 280Z, a Datsun 280Z sports car, which I vaguely remember. She yeah. had a Datsun B210 station wagon that took us all over the East Coast. And, and that was the main car. And then she had an Isuzu Trooper. Wow. Um, and did you ever sister, actually buy, own or, or buy a car? So here's where, here's where it goes. I did. I got my license uh, the year, the, the fall after I graduated college, and I bought a car from within the family. Uh, I bought a 1994 Burgundy Isuzu Trooper from my older sister, Belinda, for $1. Wow. And she handed over the title to me. We had it witnessed by a notary public. Uh, she was living in, she might've already been in Michigan at the time. Um, and yeah, and I drove that car from Michigan back to Boston and I loved it. I called it my apocalypse mobile because this is the boxy Isuzu Trooper. There was no window tinting. Yeah. It was all utility, very little flare. And it rode high off the ground. You could pop it into four wheel drive pretty quickly and it could handle it could handle things. And I just was like, I'm going to strap stuff to the roof. I'm going to put stuff on the side. Like if things go down. Yeah. And I grew up as a boy scout and a black politically active person, the son of my mother. So I'm prepared for multiple types of things to go down. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> From a hurricane to a revolution, right. a revolutionary hurricane. Right. Uh, so the trooper was appropriately named and sized wow. for my emergency preparedness purposes. Uh, yeah. And I had that car for a few years until I moved to New York City. When I first lived there, I lived in Upper Manhattan, a neighborhood called Inwood. And uh, it was a beautiful neighborhood, but my car kept getting broken into. Mm -hmm. um, and so the third time, I was like, this is costing me more headache. And I didn't really need it. I was riding the subways again, driving in New York just wasn't necessary. And so I, there's, a, there's a catchy jingle that gets stuck in the heads of anyone who's ever lived in or passed through or maybe even heard of New York City. 
which is 1-888-CARS-FOR-KIDS. Right. And so that 1-888-CARS-FOR-KIDS. 1877. 1-877-CARS-FOR-KIDS. for the correction, yeah. Painful song ever with these kids that you want to root for, but you also want to lock in a closet because it's so painful to listen to them sing that song, right? So I, um, I donated my car to those kids. It worked. Wow. You actually did it. I did it because I I've never met anybody who actually donated to one eight seven seven cars. It was the only. It was literally Paul. The only thing I knew to do with. I have a car. How do I get rid of it? I love. There's a song for that. There is. I love it. Needled into your head from Ten Ten Wins. I love it every day. I love it. So yeah, that was my first car. I think Isuzu Troopers were also. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe most notorious for flipping over. It was like the truck that would take a sharp turn and flip. I remember seeing videos or like consumer report warnings or, or something about them. So here's, maybe- here's, what I, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. I, right. I don't think that's true. Okay. Um, I certainly don't want it to be true, but here's why I, I don't feel in my heart that it's true. I'm going <laughs> to bypass the brain. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some inspiration from national leadership. <laughs> I don't feel like it's true. And the reason I don't feel like that's true is because my family was very loyal to the Isuzu Corporation. At first, it was the, the Nissan slash Datsun family, and we rolled hard with that company for years. Right. And my mom got a trooper, my sister got a trooper, and I got her trooper, and we had three troopers at one point in the family, and we caravaned across the country together. Wow. And I, don't, I think my mother loved herself, my sister, and me enough to not put us in a tip-over vehicle. We also had a rivalry. It was like a one-sided rivalry in the family against the Jeep Grand Cherokee. Ah. And, um, and, and the Dodge Caravan. And I, wow. as, a, as a teenager, I would refer to the Dodge Caravan as, a, as the Yucca Van, because who drives a minivan, and the Jeep Trans Cherokee as the Trash Key. And I'm just like, nobody else picked this fight. This was a one, this was like Boston versus New York. This is it was a one-sided fight from my family to an entire, to the Jeep Corporation. But I think is in part because I think it was the Jeep Trans Grand Cherokee that did the tipping over. I, uh, I love it. I, we will have to, we'll have to put a pin in it and come back to it. <laughs> uh, and it can be an entire, we can do a dispatch on that in particular. But um, I think it, it's, 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 it's always, I love the car question. There's never a disappointing answer to the car question. Everybody's yeah. response is an insight into that person. But I think it also, you know, frames up this, this upbringing that you've had that brought you to be a, a leader and to take on issues and to take on, uh, you, you know, uh, whether it's organizations or corporations or wrongs and to be a, you know, an advocate for social justice and for causes that matter. And, and the reason I've been excited to talk to you about your work for a long time, but the timing right now for me, I think is so perfect because what we haven't really talked about on this show. And I think more broadly in America is the front line of the coronavirus um, that, that is underreported, that is underrecognized and that's race. And, and, you know, I tried to pull statistics and even in doing that, it's difficult to do, you know, the the statistics I was able to find was from American public media. And they said that only about 61% of the dead uh, is is race data available. And of that 61, sorry, 61,000 of the almost 80,000, the number I saw was 16,000 dead uh, were black. So let's say a quarter, right? But the, the point is disproportionately people of color, black people are being impacted by the coronavirus or being killed by the virus or being hurt by the virus on the front lines of the virus. So I really, you, you are, I, I'm always reluctant to ask anyone to be an expert on a, something so massive, but you're, a lot of your work has been about race. You wrote a book called How to Be Black that was a bestseller. You give a, a fantastic TED Talk that's got over 2 million views. 
But can you break down from where you sit, Baratunde, how is the coronavirus impacting black people in America right now? Yeah, thank you for the question. Thank you for the super respectful way in which you addressed it, actually. Um, and I don't mind talking about it. I, I've said this to others. It is it's very hard for me to complain about being asked about race when I wrote a book called How to Be Black. Right? That's, just, that's just wrong. You know, I got to expect it. Right. And uh, coronavirus is devastating to Black America for a number of reasons. I think there are sort of precedent reasons why any challenge hurts certain communities more, whether it's a, a public health challenge or a, a financial crisis, like any crisis almost inevitably hurts Black people more because we're disproportionately poor in this country and because we have uh, the pre-existing condition of Blackness, which is often leads to more negative outcomes, even for the same sort of starting line, even people of the same wealth and zip code and all the other conditions that would lead to like positive outcomes, like people tend to do worse. So of course, uh, an epidemic and then a pandemic has the high probability of hitting black people harder uh, because the system is designed to hit black people harder. Um, and, And so internally we have issues in the black community based on a lot of history and experience of less access and less trust to medical care. So that's, a, that's like one piece of the puzzle is we have just lower doctors per thousand in our communities. We have weaker hospital systems. More of us rely on publicly funded hospitals and community health centers, which have far fewer resources. Uh, we have a history of mistrust with the medical community. And so they're in, inside the black community, there were early conspiracy theories and rumors about this doesn't even affect us. And when you lay that up against the history of medicine being weaponized against Black people, experimentation being done on us on the one hand, or just the, the denial of our experience and our pain because we're deemed subhuman for such a long amount of time. It's really, it's not official policy anymore, mm. but it is still official culture because that policy was set for such a long time that our nation has a muscle memory that like we're less than human. And so our complaints are taken less seriously when we do decide to seek out medical attention. We are assumed to have a higher threshold for pain because we're superhuman yet also subhuman. It's the paradox mm. of blackness in this country that we are more than and less than human, but never just human. So that's, that, that whole history is a part of why uh, COVID-19, the coronavirus has hit black people harder. Um, and then we're overexposed. You know, you, you mentioned kind of front lines, and I think we have an explicit understanding of the frontline heroes, the first responders, the doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and medical technician and ICU staff who kind of signed up for this, right? Mm-hmm. They, they enlisted to borrow some language from some of your history, and they kind of knew the contract they were signing. Their lives might be put at risk. But a bus driver, a subway operator, a grocery store clerk, you know, a, a service industry worker um, did not necessarily sign up for that. They signed up for a paycheck and probably not even the right to organize. <laughs> and, uh, and so we are over-indexed, uh, sort of overrepresented in those types of jobs. The Lyft drivers of the world, the Uber drivers of the world, they're not all Black, of course, but they're disproportionately Black. Um, and then, <laughs> so that's like a thing. Um, less serious medical treatment, some mistrust of medicine, overexposure due to occupation, 
due to living conditions and culture as well. ProPublica, you know, if you're looking for information and a really good perspective, ProPublica has become my go-to source. They're a nonprofit news organization. I know this audience is highly independent. And so this is not like, I'm not sending you to MSNBC. Right. Uh, I'm also not sending you to Breitbart. Like ProPublica is as close to just the facts as you can get. And they don't even have any advertisers putting pressure on them. And so that to me is like a huge credit. And they did a, they've done a number of devastating pieces about this. One is about Chicago, where they analyzed the first hundred deaths of this disease there. The first 70 of those hundred were black. Chicago is not 70% black. Right, right. But a lot of that played out because of the factors that I shared with you, partly informed by that piece. They've also done another piece, and this is what I think about like on the back end of the virus. So we're being asked to do a lot of hard things as people. We're being asked to forego income, to forego community and gatherings, and just a normal way of life. All the things we've been taught we're entitled to, not just as Americans, but as people, we're being asked by mostly responsible leaders to forego those things in exchange for something called safety, Mm. right? It's like we're flattening the curve so we can save lives. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of this, Black people are getting beat for that. Right. And it's, and it's, and it's, there's a, the, the discrimination knows no bounds. We are, we are discriminated against on the front end, making us more vulnerable to the disease in the first place. We're discriminated against in the middle. When we think we have it, we're taken less seriously. When we have it, we have poorer resources to address it, to address it. And we're discriminated against on the edges and the outside of it, just by trying to comply, wearing a mask social distancing. Mm -hmm. If we wear a mask, we're doing something wrong because we're threatening and suspicious and people are calling the cops on us or kicking us out of Walmart. If we're not wearing a mask, we're being yanked off of public transportation in Philadelphia, beat up on the streets of New York City and having a knee put into our neck. Meanwhile, in the other America, we have the stories of cops handing out masks to white America. Oh, you want a surgical mask? Here you go. And to layer on top of this, you have this Ahmad Arbery situation, which is not directly COVID, right? This incident in Georgia happened. This brother was out jogging in a white neighborhood. Some vigilante type, stand your ground white dudes with guns saw him jogging, suspected him of committing burglary on a construction site, confronted him and shot him twice in the chest and killed him. Now he's not jogging with a gun, so he's obviously unarmed. And they lay in wait for him to execute this unsanctioned execution, this murder. And so that is a painful reminder as we're all being asked to make sacrifice, as we're all being asked to come together to save lives and flatten the curves. There's a part of this country which is reminding us, not your life, your life doesn't matter. And instead, I'm going to attend a rally and I'm going to be very intimidating. I'm going to wave some don't tread on me flags and kind of bastardize the military history to talk about freedom and to talk about pro-life and to scream all lives matter. Meanwhile, this disease is killing and removing certain types of lives more than other. And then that leads to the crazy thinking, but very logical conclusion. Oh, you don't care. Mm. It actually is very convenient to agitate aggressively for reopening an economy, which is going to put more lives at stake because the numbers are in and it's not your life. It's mine. Right. 
Right. Can I, can I, can I, oh, yeah, that's, that's I, I wanna, a bit of my take on the racial aspect of COVID-19. Thank you for that, Baratunde. Yeah, I, I want to pull a number of pieces of it apart. Yeah. Um, and you've been, in my view, kind of a, a next generation thought leader. You, you know, you're, you're in multiple platforms. You're a master of technology. You know, you're, uh, you're cre- creating and producing your own content, but you're, you know, you're moving between many different platforms, many different uh, mediums, many different worlds, right? And many different communities, but you're a leader. And I think, you know, your book really, I think was an important um, defining moment in establishing you as a leader. I mean, it was a bold book, right? How to be black. And it, and it, and it caught attention and it was a ridiculous, but it, it was fantastic. But I also Thank think you. it was, it was an important moment in establishing you as a leader, but also recognizing how few people were taking that issue and those issues head on. Right. So I want to I want to we talk a lot about leadership in this show. Right. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you, who the hell is leading for black people right now or who should people look to, whether they're black, white, whatever? Where are the, who are the voices of our time? Right. Because I'm looking across the landscape. We've got a racist president. We've got many racist institutions. I can't think of a black governor, right? I see all these, go- they mar- I'm sure there's a few of them, but you don't see, they're, they're mostly white governors out there. You know, Van Jones can only be on CNN so much. I mean, who, who do you think are the most important voices right now on the issues that, the many issues that you just laid out? Yeah. Um, Patrice Cullors is a leader. She's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. And is a strong voice in the area area of criminal justice reform, decarceration, uh, which is you know to remove the dubious title of number one for highest percentage of population behind bars that that America owns. We're number one at a lot of things we shouldn't be number one at. Mm. So Patrice is is one of those voices, and uh, I think Reverend William Barber out of North Carolina is one of those leaders. Uh, he started leading this movement called Moral Mondays. He, he speaks of the need for, I still remember his, his speech from the DNC in 2016 yeah, before the great fall. Uh, and he said, we need a revolution of moral values. And he's one of those folks who can just speak so clearly to a higher calling and a higher purpose that, isn't, that is like transpartisan. It's not, he, he's not arguing for electing Democrats. Right. <laughs> he's arguing for living up to our potential as human beings. And it's really, really beautiful. Brian Stevenson, another yeah. Yeah. Uh, man, a Southerner in Alabama, runs the Equal Justice Initiative. I cited him heavily in the TED Talk that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and they have these lynching memorials. He's written a book called Just Mercy. Michael B. Jordan played him really beautifully in the movie of the same name. Um, and, and, and there are so many others. There are many mayors who are on it. Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago right. is, is trying to creatively use her platform to speak to the whole city and speak to the black residents of her city and speak to the nation all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never been a resident of Chicago, but I love the city. I've visited a lot. I've done a lot of business there. And I, I appreciate her attempts to lead in a moment where some of that leadership is lacking. Yeah. Uh, what Kamala Harris has done in the Senate. And the way she's trying to use her platform and lead and call attention to what Bernie Sanders has done with his platform as a no longer presidential candidate. He's been, ho- this is like, this is leadership. You, know, you use this term and I think there's so many ways it shows up. Of course, there's ego in a person who wants to be president and thinks they're better than everybody else who also wants to be yeah. president. 
But there's a level of generosity and selfishness to use all the attention that you get because your name means something, because you have a bunch of followers on all these platforms, and then hand the microphone over. So Bernie Sanders has been running these town halls where he puts other people on stage. Even though he's definitely not going to be the Democratic, it's not even about that anymore, about him being the president or being the, the nominee from the Democratic Party. So it's not just black people. I'm riffing off a few names. No, I think that's a great, that, that's, that's, what, that's what I think people need to hear. And also yeah. record. somebody like Brian Stevenson, I mean, I, I, I remember the first time I heard him speak and it just, it changed me. Like yeah. I said, this guy is amazing. Why isn't he everywhere? Right? I really, <laughs> that's what I thought. I was like, yeah. this is one of the most brilliant guys. He's breaking it all down. Uh, I was at Ted and I heard him talk and I was like, he, he blew me away, right? Those yeah. moments where you feel like you're experiencing a moment that changes and shifts your perspective. And that was my immediate response. It's like, why isn't this guy everywhere, right? Yeah. But I think that also cuts to many of the institutionalized barriers that exist because I feel like, and I may be wrong, but I feel like, you know, I know Kamala Harris is out there. I know that Cory Booker is out there. I know that Stacey Abrams is out there. But I also feel like they're not, uh, they're not front and center enough. And they're probably yeah. trying to squeeze into that conversation. And it's a tough one to squeeze into. I look at it from the community that I've represented for so long when we're screaming to tell people, hey, maybe one in four people uh, dying from COVID are veterans, right? Yeah. The, the VA this week. <sighs> The VA this week released data saying that disproportionate that, that African American veterans are disproportionately at risk for COVID nineteen, but provided no data, no data, no context. Just said, you know, basically, we think that these people are at higher risk, and we're not going to provide any additional information. So I feel like these issues of race are still central to yeah. everything. Uh, in terms of their importance and their priority, but still peripheral in terms of where the conversation is. And I think the president guides that, right? And I'm wondering if now in this moment, maybe it's Barack Obama starting to insert himself more. Um, maybe it's Michelle Obama and other voices, you know, pushing harder now that we've got one nominee with Biden. I hope that Biden can expand that argument. But I feel like there is a, a very important moment in the next couple of months to have almost a reckoning on race. Right. And, and, and I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but it brings me to the question that I think is, is, is seminal to this, um, this show, especially Baratunde, what makes you angry? Thank you for the question, Paul. Um, fuck. I think the, uh, the relentlessness of this nation's commitment to the destruction of black people makes me very angry. And I live mostly in a place of hope and optimism and humor and invitation. You know, even when I'm speaking on issues that are really divisive and difficult, trying to welcome people in with a smile and a joke and some truth sprinkled on top. But there's nothing like the extreme nature of a pandemic, the literal life and death of it, to know where you stand, Mm. to have a truth revealed. And it is hard to come to any other conclusion but that this country continues to be enthusiastically okay with the deaths of Black people, with the destruction of Blackness. And that pisses me off. It pisses me off because like I mentioned with my fiance working on the PPE work, like she shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't still have to be doing this. I feel annoyed. I feel impatient. 
I feel pissed. I'm like, people already died for this shit. Mm. There's been blood in so many streets. There have been soldiers who've died. There have been civilians who've died. All in this battle for a more perfect union. And yet we are still called to fight. Mm. And I'm exhausted by that call. And it's a noble fight. And I'm not so selfish or small-minded to think that we're such a special people that we don't deserve to suffer ever. There's millions of people across this world who are also suffering. There are religious groups who've suffered for thousands of years. It's not that it's unique. It's that it's persistent Mm. and creative Mm. and committed. This country is so... if, If America put as much creativity, improvisation, and commitment into healing itself, into welcoming people as it did into destroying black people. We could be the great nation that we've claimed to be for hundreds of years. We could do that. We have clearly the energy for it because we're expending that energy wildly in the direction of destruction. But if we could expend it in the direction of creation, that would give me a little more hope. But now it just, it it makes me angry. And I have found that anger expressed in my body, um, in how I'm showing up, in weight loss. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm, people are talking about a COVID-15. I have a COVID-15, but I don't know mm. if that's good. Mm. It's not like I'm working out. You know? mm. I think I'm like reading news and being in this place at this time, and I'm burning myself off with stress, eating myself away. In, in part, maybe it's also that I'm cooking meals and not in airports all the day. It's very possible <laughs> that I just have a healthier diet and roasting chickens is better than like airport chicken. So, so it's there, it's possible. But yeah, that's- uh, Thank you. That makes me angry. Thank, thank you. For the question. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, when I started the show, there were, there were a number of people, plenty of people who said no. They said, you know what? The title's too provocative. Right. I'm not that angry. And when I really have dissected it over more than a year of shows- you know, most folks uh, say to me, yeah, I understand. I'm angry, right? But then there's still some folks, and they tend almost always to be uh, conservative white men or, yeah. conser- or, or liberal white men mm-hmm. who uh, are either not that angry or not comfortable with being angry. Yeah. And, and when, I, when people challenge me and say, you know, you know the angry Americans, you know, who's angry? I say, who's not? Like, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. If you're not, if you, have you talked to any black people? Have you talked to any women? Have you talked to any, any, anybody who's Muslim? I mean, there's yeah. plenty of reason to be uh, angry. And, and I think it's a righteous anger, right? It's not yeah. just a, a burning, nasty, burn it down fire. It can be, you know, a constructive energy that fueled the civil rights movement and that fuels activism, right? And you can turn that, that anger into something positive. But I think mm-hmm. there has to be a real recognition in this country that many people are angry and have a right to be angry. And if they're not angry, something's probably wrong with them because, you know, it takes me to the other thing that I do want to go deeper on with you, yeah. which is Ahmad Bar- Arbery, right? And yeah. Ahmad Arbery happens. You described it very, very well. Um, you know, this, the video shows a young man hunted and murdered in basically his own neighborhood, right? And, and some are gonna argue, you know, he may have been trespassing. I tweeted this, I've been into empty houses, I've been arrested for criminal mischief and trespassing, I've been there. When I was, when I was younger, uh, I did that and was arrested for it. And that was my experience. 
And that wasn't a fun experience. I mean, I've had times growing up when I was roughed up by the cops and I am yeah. a big white, pretty privileged guy in, in, in comparison to what other people experience. But this dude was, was hunted in the street and murdered. And it's happening as you laid out, I think so beautifully in the context of this pandemic. But then also this week, uh, a woman named Breonna Taylor was murdered in her own home. Mm-hmm. She was an EMT. I think she was 26 years old. The cops stormed her apartment and shot her 20 times. I mean, this is happening in the background now. And I really mm-hmm. think it's the background. And some folks, I give Chris Cuomo and others credit for trying to elevate this and make sure that it doesn't get passed over or forgotten. But I think, you know, the national leadership right now would like to be deaf to this, would like to have it go away. But this is a very real source of anger, but I think also a mirror for us. So I wanted to make sure I gave you an opportunity because you have so much wisdom and perspective and and connection to how people are feeling. I'm so grateful for how uh, open you are about how you feel in this because I felt that same way, but I'm not experiencing at all what you are. But there's an anxiety and and, and a stress on all of us that's kind of eating us up in, in different ways. But when you look at Ahmaud Arbery, and you look at this moment, right? What does, what does not just Ahmaud Arbery, but, but Ahmaud Arbery in this moment, what, what, what are your thoughts, Baratunde? Uh, sadness. I, I, I think about Ahmaud and, and Brianna, and my thoughts are of sadness for their families, their friends, their community, sadness for us to miss out on them. Hmm. Uh, they're not just people who no longer exist, they are contributors who no longer contribute, whether that is creatively, whether that is culturally, whether that is economically, um, you know, quantifiably or qualitatively, they, their absence is our loss. And I, um, I think, look, we're, we're in a, we're in a, America's being stress tested, our whole system like never before. I remember the language of stress test out of the financial crisis. We're going to put these banks through a stress test. And it was like a, a computer game, I guess, where they like run a bunch of scenarios in Microsoft Excel. and see like, will this bank exist if they do like 50% irresponsible bullshit or 70% irresponsible? It turns out they'll still exist if they do 100% because uh, very few of them paid any price. Right. We continue to pay that price uh, as taxpayers. So I, I think... You know, in, in the moral character that I have that's trying to teach America a lesson, that professor is like ratcheting it up. It's actually a coach. It's like Coach America. It's like, oh, you didn't get the lesson, huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. We're doing 50 burpees. Okay. Mm-hmm. No water for you. Okay. We're doing stadium stairs too, right? right. Like, what's it going to take, America, for you to see who you are? And as important, and it's not just, I'm not on like a shame kick. I don't want to feel bad about my own country. That's like feeling bad about my mother. Right. You know, I don't want to be ashamed of my own family. It's not a, if, if you've ever been unproud of your father or your mother, even if it's clear, you don't, it's not a good feeling. You, sh- you shrink your shoulders a bit, you hide it, you act out to cover it up in the schoolyard and you pick on some other kid just because they've got a family you think is better than yours. So I don't want shame for America. I don't want this position. But I feel like we're, we're being given a beautiful opportunity to see where we are 
to see the consequences of our choices and our actions. For the crowd that says it doesn't matter who the president is, I humbly submit, go fuck yourself. Hmm. It matters. It's life and death. And I don't like to curse at people I disagree with, but it's like I'm that angry. Your show's called Angry Imagine is bringing this out of me. It does matter. Even while it also is true that most presidents persist in the same sort of gross class-based economic behavior. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's an academic point. But practically speaking, there are people who are dead right now. They're dead. Who would not be dead if we had a president who cared about any American other than himself. That's not even a race point. That's just like his ego is bigger than all of us combined. His interest is only in self. And there are people who are dead because of it. And they can't come back from that. So I'm thinking all that. And then I'm thinking about the opportunity that we have before us. The Great Depression led to the greatest expansion of compassion in the form of government policy that this nation has known. The Civil War is something we had to go through, apparently, to try to reconcile our heinous history of treating people as property. We're in it, man. Like, we're in a moment equivalent to that scale. Right. It's not a civil war exactly. It's not the same as the Depression, but like 26 million at least unemployed yeah. in two months. Yeah. That is a collapse of something. And we, the coach was trying to tell us mm. earlier, showing us our options. And so now we got to hit these stadiums and do these burpees and get back in the damn game. Um, and I guess the beauty of, of, of the system we have and of the democracy is like the game's always running. Mm. It's not game over yet. Mm. It sometimes feels like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we're, but, if we're, but we're if, still in the game. If we're, yeah. if we're still in the game and we're in the final part of the game where we're fighting the big boss, mm-hmm. and, and that's what the election is, right? He's the big yeah. boss at the end, right? Where we got to use all our tricks and, you know, to, to win the game or advance to the next level or unlock. We're, I'm talking trick plays. I'm yeah, talking right? laterals. That's where I'm at, right? Like, that's what I think needs to happen. And, and it's bigger than party. It's bigger than everything. Yeah. It's bigger than the virus because if, if he gets reelected, it's it's the most existential threat to our democracy that we've ever seen. In my His reelection I, is yeah. is a co-signing on a death warrant. It is. I agree. I agree with that. But I want to ask you um, because this has been such a you've been so candid and so and and exactly what I would what what I hoped you would bring to this conversation in a format where we can really talk, but. We're, we're, we're going to beat the boss. I think the odds are now that we'll beat the bad boss unless something changes. Um, but then Biden becomes president. Yeah. So can you reflect on maybe what your thoughts are on it? Maybe what your hopes are. Right. And, and I hate to say I've too often been asked to be the ambassador from planet veteran. Right. And <laughs> yeah, I'm always reluctant yeah. to ask you to be the ambassador from planet black. Right. Right. But, but, but for you and as a thought leader on, on these issues, what do you hope for? And what do you, and also not just hope for, but what do you want and what do you expect? And maybe what do you demand from a Biden presidency Yeah, that, that, that will, that will take us forward after we defeat that, that bad boss? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Oh, uh, this is a, the opposite emotion of what I shared earlier. It's really a powerful question to ask people what they want and to like paint a picture. So here's the picture I want to see. I want to see a president Biden that fills the void 
left by the current president. There is so much power in being president of the United States Mm. in every action you take, in what you have on the bookshelf behind you, in the reporters you call on, in your press gaggle, in where you choose to visit in the country and outside of the country, and who you deign to give speeches to. And what I want President Biden to do, biggest of all, is be our president. All of us. Hmm. We. We have a president of grievance right now. We have a president of self. Even those who identify as Republicans and conservatives, he's not their president either. Hmm. He's the president of his own self-interest. And he is willing to throw everyone under the bus for that. I'm so excited to have a president again. I don't even have one. Most of us don't have one, unless your last name is Trump and you have a bunch of properties in the same name. He's not looking out for you. So I want Biden to look out for all of us. I want him to speak to all of us. I want him to remind us of all the beautiful things we have in common. I want him to remind us that we all love our children, even those who don't have children. Mm. I want him to remind us that we can be pro-life and believe all lives matter if we actually do. Mm. And that that extends to the undocumented meat processing plant worker, as well as to the unborn fetus. Like he can unify that language in the same way. And I don't even identify with that identity of life, but I think there's a rhetorical way to include sanctity in life and remind people okay, if you're going to say all lives matter, it's got to be all lives. Mm. And that we all want a future that's better than our present and our past. Like we can share that. Mm. And we can share the beautiful things that this country is capable of. We have done so much dope shit, Paul. We have, we have, it's so trite. Like we've gone to the moon and we've defeated the Nazis and fascism. But we did do those things. We also invented the internet and TikTok (laughs) And gave birth to LeBron. Like, we can claim that. That's our shit. And I want someone who's going to celebrate this country in a way that we can all join and cheer along. We got a, we got a guy now who, he's got a celebratory spirit. I'll actually give that to him. He wants to be positive. But the only way he knows how to do it is at someone else's expense. Mm. It's, it's the comedian who only knows how to tell a joke if it hurts somebody else. Mm. I'm tired of that type of joke. I'm mm. tired of the joke that hurts others. Mm. There's other types of jokes. There's other types of things to celebrate. Mm. And we are a nation big enough and bold enough and brave enough that we can all applaud each other. Mm. That's what I want from Biden. There's a specific laundry list of policies I'd love to see that would help black people and help poor people and help migrant workers and help women and help everybody. And I want to see some financial reforms and I want to see this, but I think the spirit I'm looking for is one that uses every single opportunity to bridge a gap instead of exacerbate it. Mm. And I actually think he could do it. Mm. Cheers to that, right? Cheers to that, right? Cheers. Thank you for all of that and all that... All that you are, man. I mean, you, 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 people who are just hearing about you or hearing you for the first time now understand, I think, a, a little bit about why I've been so looking forward to having a conversation with you. But you, you, you do this beautiful thing, Baratunde, in all of your work, which is understand pain, 
but still provide inspiration, mm. which I know as an activist and as a social entrepreneur is, is hard. It's not something we yeah. talk about in the open a lot, but to feel pain personally and other people's pain, to absorb that pain is a unique, almost superpower. And then to be able to, to endure that pain and still be positive, to still provide humor, to still provide inspiration, I think is, is one of the, the most powerful parts about you and your work. So I want to ask you the, the other question we ask of, of all of our guests that are shaping the past, the present, and the future of America. Baratunde Thurston, what makes you happy? That's a long list of things that make me happy. Um, but I think the word connection is emerging right now when I feel connected. Um, and there's like many layers to, to what that means. So it means first sort of internally, there are times when I'm not really connected to myself and I can still perform the functions of human right? <laughs> and get the job done and, and, and do these functions, but I'm not in it or I'm distracted, or I'm not honest, right? Um, but when I'm really connected to me, there is a difference. There have been moments in our conversation where I went there. I was like, I'm just going to just go. I'm going to mm. cry. I'm going to scream. I'm going to curse. Mm. And I was angry, but I was also happy. Um, and I think that that union, my sister, Belinda, uh, is a yoga instructor and entrepreneur. She runs her own studio in Michigan donation-based, justbeyoga.com. Check her out. And she teaches yoga in the spirit of the term. That word actually means union. Mm. It's not about maximum flexibility. It's not about how expensive your tights are, right? It's about the union of, of self along your chakras and your soul and your body. Um, and so that union is, is a piece of it. And then connection to others. Um, you know, I have the privilege of being in a loving relationship with another human being and sometimes the pain right, mm. of that. And so that connection with her, I'm at my happiest, like when we're in a union and there's a flow mm. and then it extends beyond the interpersonal solo to like other humans and the larger world. I'm, I'm really happy on, um, there's, I live in this neighborhood and I have liked to take walks and I did it, you know, initially for fitness and for exploration, but also for visual reminders to my neighbors that I live here and like, mm. like please don't call the cops on me mm. or shoot me. Right. It was like a survival technique wrapped in a little bit of self-deprecating humor, but like a true survival thing. Yeah. But there is a hill nearby and I love going to that hill because I literally get perspective. There's a 360 degree view. And I can see mountains and I can see Burbank and like the little towers and I can see downtown Los Angeles on a clear day, which is a lot of days nowadays. Yeah. And I can like hear the birds, you know, <laughs> like it's just so cheesy and so simple, but I am so happy because of that connection. Hmm. And I, I think the other side of connection is, is loneliness, right? Is isolation. Like I don't, I don't want to be alone. Hmm. You can, and you can be, you can be in New York city and I was, and be alone. You can be in a relationship and I was, and be alone. And so the opposite of that, that connection brings me such joy um, and makes me feel really at home. Hmm. That's beautiful, man. 
Yeah, thanks for beautiful. That. And I think when yeah. I think of the uh, n- again, not to be trite, but when I think of the the change in elevation, there's the great Jimmy Buffett line. You know, change of latitude, change of attitude. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. That's a hard part of this pandemic is you can't really change your latitude much. Yeah. Right. And sometimes you need that elevation uh, or that decline just to change your perspective. And a walk can do that. I think we're all finding a greater appreciation for go- just going out and having a, a simple walk. Yeah. Um, but you have been uh, a force of nature in many areas. Um, you're doing some cool stuff that I want to give you a chance to quickly talk about, um, uh, you know, the kind of forward edge of media. You, yeah. You've been pushing it. You and I wrapped a little bit before we started about like what kind of microphones we're using, how the hell to broadcast in a pandemic, which is freaking hard. I, ironically, I was on, I did an interview with Fox News this week about how I'm quarantining, right? Um, because apparently there's one guy at Fox that wants some insight. Um, but, but um, you know, talk about what you're doing now and how you're pushing the edge of conversation in this moment, because I, th- yeah. I think the stars are going to emerge in the pandemic. And, mm. and, and I think you're one of them. Um, we were talking about D nice earlier at, at, you know, the DJ saying like, why doesn't he have the tech set up that you have it's not <laughs> that hard, but you know, he's an example of somebody who's emerged at yeah. time as a voice of clarity and connection and happiness. Right. And I think you similarly are emerging that way. So can you share with us, please, what you're, what you're up to and what you're thinking about going forward? Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for the question. Thanks for even putting me in the same paragraph as D nice. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have been making a show from this room. It is called Live on Lockdown, LOL. And it was inspired. Um, it, it, occurred, it, it was a rare moment where like a light bulb kind of went off over my head. I couldn't sleep because of fear, anxiety, the news, pending death. I don't know, right? Is yeah. this a COVID cough or is it just allergies? And so all I'm not of that on podcast anymore, like I will no, hold no. down because I don't want people to think I got the virus. So. And I don't, I don't I like, can you catch it through zoom? Like this is an HD <laughs> connection. I don't, my internet's, maybe my internet connection is too good. I don't yeah, want yeah, yeah. Like a, a digital transmitted COVID infection. So I, in the beginning of this, it was, it was uh, March 13th. I had returned two days prior from New York to LA, my last flight maybe of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I woke up at three 30 in the morning. And it was like live on lockdown, like this voice in my head, LOL, that's the name of the show. And I couldn't fall back asleep. So I started writing some stuff and I just popped open. I sent out a, a, an email. I popped open a Zoom and I started making a show. And, and that show has emerged to be what it was in the very first episode, which was I wanted a way to share information and my point of view. I wanted a way to bring some joy and some lightness and some positivity to what is a very dark um, moment potentially and, and actually. And I wanted to elevate other people's voices. I wanted to hear from other people who were like having a frontline experience of their own and use my platform in the way that I described Bernie earlier. Mm. I, I, am a, I have a lot more than most people mm. in the history of the world. I am in the 1%. I got running water and straight teeth and I've lived past 40. Like I'm killing the game. And you went to Harvard. And I went to Harvard. Yeah. I I had an education. Like I'm literate. Like I'm already beating most humans. Between like dental hygiene and literacy. Yeah. I'm crushing it. So um, I wanted to invite people in and, and create a moment to, to do the we thing that I'm really obsessed with. Mm. How do we take this moment, see each other in it, 
find collective things worth cheering for and like be a nation, be a community, be a world. So that very first episode, I had, it was a magic moment because I had been sharing a Twitter video, rolling it into my Zoom with my high-tech skills. And there was a newspaper clipping from Bergamo, Italy. And this is super early. America's not taking this seriously yet. Right. And someone did a, a video comparison of like the obituary page from the local newspaper in Bergamo from early February, one page of obituaries, to early March, 11 pages of obituaries. Mm. And as I'm sharing this video into my Zoom room with like 50 or 60 people, one of those people in the little chat says, I'm in Bergamo right now. Wow. I was like, what? So I pulled him on the camera. We had an impromptu interview. He lived there part-time, then full-time with the lockdowns. And he was prophetic about what would happen in America. Mm. I put his clip out the next day. It blew up. Now this news picked it up. Hundreds of thousands of people saw this thing. And he said, America risks having it worse than Italy because you haven't implemented the measures and you're not taking it seriously enough soon enough. And that is exactly what happened. Mm. And I spoke to a woman in France and she said the same. I spoke to Shaka Sangor, who was a criminal, you know, formerly incarcerated person, criminal justice reformer. And he talked six weeks ago about everything that's playing out in the nation's prisons right now. So I've been making a show. And for me, it's really powerful because I've been trying to make a show, Paul, since I left The Daily Show four years ago. And I have pitched, I have piloted, I have prostrated myself before the gods of Hollywood. And I, I, there was a period where I made five pilots in an 18-month period for two different networks. Wow. And they all are amazing and none of them exist as TV series. And part of it's the nature of the game. I'm not that special. Many people who've made it didn't make it for a long time before they did. But then the pandemic comes along. And in a day, I spin up a show. And in weeks, I've done all these episodes. So yeah, if, if, if any of that sounds appealing to, to your beautiful listeners, check me out. Check out that show. It's baratunde.com, B-A-R-A-T-U-N-D-E.com slash live. That's where all the archives live. I do the show on Zoom. I do it on Instagram Live. I'm experimenting with even doing it on Facebook proper. It's like, oh, what would that feel like to, to give Zuckerberg my attention directly and not through like an acquisition? And, uh, I did it. I did it. It feels a little dirty, but you get it a was lot weird. More, it was, you get a lot were, more old, but you get a lot more old people. So and I and I got and I saw friends I hadn't seen. In, I'm like, yeah. oh, that's where you went. You live. Yeah. You live in Facebook. It's like yeah. we yeah. can't go to different restaurants. We can like go to different digital platforms. Yeah, it's I'm, true. I was like hanging out in Club Facebook. It's true. <laughs> like, yo, I haven't seen John in like ten years. This is where he goes. Yeah, yeah. It was like uh, it was like going to Twilo in in the two thousands, dropping oh, in, listening to Sasha and Digweed. It was a very different time, and all of these enclaves represent different times. Yeah. But you, but you're a man of the moment. And I think that that's what, you know, I, I, what I know, having worked in and around media, is that a lot of people who have shows suck. And a lot of people, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of people who don't have shows are so much better. Yeah. And, you know, I think, like, I, I think I have some talents that also scare the shit out of people. They don't know if I'm going to say fuck every, every third word or who I'm going to attack or who I'm going to piss off. And yeah. you know, I'm a bald guy named Rykoff with a show called Angry Americans. So I'm just scaring the shit out of a lot of people. <laughs> but, but, but I think what you're doing is so important and innovative. And when I said it earlier, you know, I think you are a next generation thought leader. You're moving and, and, 
and, and listening and shifting and innovating. And, and I talk a lot about improvise, adapt, and overcome and how that is essential, especially in combat. And I view this as a time of, of war, unlike anything we've ever seen before. But I think you're emerging and you have emerged in the past as a voice of, of light in the face of heat. And I am grateful well, for that. And, you, I, and it brings me to... The, well, hold on. Before you do that, let me, yes, let me share yeah. one more thing with you. And because yes. you painted me as like this media digital innovator and I, I got to live up to that. Yeah. So here's what, here's what I'll share as well. Yes. Um, always appreciate people who still have finances <laughs> to support financially. And I have a Patreon uh, and it's patreon.com slash Baratunde as little as five bucks a month will help pay for this microphone yep. and these headphones and this internet connection. Yep. which is dope. I have the yep. dopest internet in LA. And dope I enough sure. to transmit COVID-19. That may be, maybe it's that good. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so if you're down, if you have those kind of resources, but, but then most interesting to me, can you use that word like innovate? I've been giving out my phone number and mm. I don't know if you're, you're on this kick yet, but I have a, a phone number. You can just text me. Literally anybody just text me. It's, it's not my personal phone. It doesn't blow up my, doesn't drain my battery, but it's a service that reaches my phone. And I picked a DC area code because that's my home uh, originally, 202-894-8844. And what that's allowed, and it's actually, it goes back to the live on lockdown show. I like that connection. You know, we spoke about what makes me happy. And I like answering questions about as much as I like asking them Mm. and like hearing from the people. And so I've got people all over the country through this number who I'm in communication with, who they can ask me questions and I ask them. And they help make the show mm. because I'm sourcing information and insight and photos and song playlist information. So if that sounds intriguing to anyone listening, shoot me a text. I, I can't respond to everything all the time, but I see everything. And I, I do, you can regionally target. So like I've sent local information, whether it's about elections or how to help out in these COVID times. Yeah. Because I'm always reading and learning and I have a network of activists around me, including people like you, Paul. And so I can hit folks with certain interests or certain geographies with something most relevant to them. And it's just a very different vibe from the Facebook, Twitter, I love it. Uh, Instagram life. So that was, that was the last I and I, I will, address I, will, I wanted to. I will, to I will double up on that and encourage people to do that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was also at the point where I was like, is this really you? And then <laughs> you, your, your thing writes back, this is really me. It's like, it's, it's smarter than anything coming out of the federal government. So even, even in your low bar, low bar. lockdown in LA, I think that, <laughs> that there's innovation happening that could benefit the masses. But it, it, it is, this is in the tradition of angry Americans. We do okay. a presentation of the gifts. It is a virtual presentation of the okay. gifts. So I like first gifts. off, you know, I have some Angry Americans merch that is coming your way, uh, made by the veterans of Oscar Mike. Super comfy. Yeah. And you can use that when you're hiking or doing yoga. Always love a good t-shirt. Thank right? you. That's coming your way. And um, I'll be a black man wearing an American flag, which is extra protection. So I like that. You know, Wes Moore wrote about a very powerful a guest of the show, friend of the show, one of my good friends. I know friends. him. Not well. He, he wrote about him. how he, he's thoughtful now, you know, about what he wears when he goes running. Yeah. And he said he, he often wears his, his army stuff. Yeah. He wears stuff that identifies his, him as a veteran because he thinks so less likely, he's less likely to be shot. Um, I, I feel that so much. Well, I maybe have my a, shirt will help you avoid being shot. I've got a go, a go ruck backpack, which is made by a. a there you go. There you go. I got the, go. the U.S. flag patch on there. there I also keep go. a Canadian well, one well, as backup. On that theme, uh, the, the sponsor of this great show is our friends at uh, Bravo Sierra. Okay. Incredible wellness. Is that product. deodorant? 
This is this is deodorant that's dope. And you, I know you're a fan of sci-fi. It looks kind of sci-fi-ish. It does. Bravo Sierra smells great, is great, gives back to the, the veterans and military community. And then antibacterial body wipes that come in these space age thing that looks like <laughs> NASA food. Because I'm wearing my NASA shirt today. I see like, that. It kind of looks like space ice cream. Yeah. Um, but we'll get a bunch of those coming your way. Uh, Bravo Sierra is, is, is one of the lifebloods of the show. We've also got put that in my go bag. Thank you. We've also got a Patreon community that I hope folks will, will join. Yeah. And um, the question, the final question of the show. Okay. Tradition on this show. I'm, I'm showing you three kinds <laughs> of peeps. peeps. <laughs> Everybody's answered this question. Yellow, pink, or blue. Baratunde, Thurston. Which color would you choose and Yellow. why? Yellow, sunshine. Brighter days are ahead, and when we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, we are less afraid of the dark. So bring on the yellow. That's a beautiful answer. And I have a final gift for you, which you will also, I think, find, find beautiful for many reasons. <gasps> it is some Uncle Nearest <gasps> premium whiskey. Uh, it is the 1856 variety. It's the 100 proof. Um, if you've listened to the show with Jeffrey Wright, you know, I did. he told the longest, most detailed whiskey story I've heard Amazing in my life. Answer. Oh, all um, back to slave times. Tons of awards. I've been giving this out because Jeffrey oh. gave me a, a crate and I want to give it out to everyone else. It'll make Thank some, you. some fantastic old fashions. It's also an incredible story, you know, of, of Nears Green who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. Yeah. Jack Daniels didn't just wake up and learn how to make whiskey. It was a former <laughs> slave named Nearest Green who taught him how to do it. So, you know, here, this bottle's coming to you at some point. It may take no. six months to get to you, but when it does, you can make an amazing old fashioned. Yes. Um, yes. And, and I just want to conclude by thanking you for your courage, um, for your commitment, for your patriotism, for your leadership, for your generosity. You help a lot of other people that are trying to make it and trying to figure out how to, how to, how to uh, raise their voice. And, and your voice has been so powerful. Your TED Talk is, is incredibly inspiring. I hope folks will, will listen to that. They will buy your book, How to Be Black. They will go to baratunde.com. They will get on your text chain uh, and, and they will be a part of what you're doing and what you're building. I, I think the world of you, my friend, I'm just so grateful for your leadership and, and thank you for joining us here on the show, man. Paul Rykoff, man, I salute you. Thank you so much. This is exceeded. I had high expectations. Um, I'll admit that because I've like, I've known you. We, we've, we've not hung out socially in quite a long time, but I see you on various screens, big and small, in my household. Right. So I know what you're about, and I co-sign on it. But man, like you helped bring me to a place that I didn't know I was prepared to go. Mm. Uh, very emotional, very fired up, but still, I, like, I, apparently I still believe in shit. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, and you're like Americana vibe with the flag and the car and the whiskey. <laughs> We're still like, trying to name the car. I got to throw one last question. Do you got a name for the car? We're still trying. It's a, for those folks who are listening, it's a 69 Camaro SS, uh, you know, 354 on the floor. It's a fucking sweet car. It's got a big dent on the other side that folks can't see. If you're listening, you should listen to the video. Baritone, final question. You got a name for my car, man? Ida. Ida. Um, I like it. All right. So, so Ida, after Ida B. Wells, you and your listeners can, can Google her later, but given what you shared, and what we've talked about, and I think cars that hot will probably have a female name, and she was a badass American, and I think that car is a badass car. So uh, <laughs> thank you for having me, Paul Rykoff. Cheers to you. Salute. Salute. Stay frosty, my friend. Always. Always.
Memorial Day is coming. And that's a reason to reflect and maybe give a gift. And so is Father's Day. Father's Day is coming soon, and you'll definitely need a gift. If you miss Mother's Day, don't make the same mistake again for Father's Day. Sometimes you want to simplify without having to sacrifice performance. And if you listen to this show, you know about Bravo Sierra. Bravo Sierra is the kick-ass, highly effective, non-toxic grooming products that stand the test of the most active lifestyles or the most inactive lifestyle. If you're just sitting on your butt on your couch, Bravo Sierra is also for you. They have amazing products like soaps and moisturizers and antibacterial wipes, all the stuff you need to stay fresh and clean in the pandemic. And if you're breaking pandemic, if your state is opening and you're headed out, you're going to be exercising, you're going to be golfing, you're going to be hiking, take some of the Bravo Sierra gear, put it in your bag, and it'll keep you smelling fresh and clean when you're done. And 5% of all sales go to support active duty service members, veterans, and their families. You'll feel clean, you'll look good, and you'll smell great all day long with products that are healthy, high quality, and affordable. Extremely affordable. Men's Health calls them a game-changing grooming line. And you've heard the deal. You know about the solid cleanser. You know about the antibacterial wipes. You know about the shaving foam. Check them out at bravosierra.com. They are our leading partner for everything we're doing on Angry Americans and everything we're doing with Righteous Media. So check them out and show them some love and tell your friends. I love them. Flo Groberg loves them. All of our recent guests love them. And you can get a starter sit for free if you go to the website. 50% off all orders if you use the code ANGRY. That's bravosierra.com, bravosierra.com. Use the code ANGRY and get 15% off right now. Hook your dad up. Order it now and it will be there in time for Father's Day. You can get great products and make a great impact with a great company that helps keep this pod going. Show them some love. Get some good stuff. Go to bravosierra.com. That's bravosierra.com. Grooving Essentials. Field tested by members of the U.S. military. Made in the USA. And kicking ass. Just like this show. Bravosierra.com. There's plenty of reason to be angry in America. Especially right now. But there's always a way to make an impact, to channel that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. Whether it was George Washington or Martin Luther King or Harvey Milk or Baratunde Thurston, every generation of angry Americans turned their anger into positive impact. And you can do that as well. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Unless you're new here, you know the deal. We offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action, channeling that positive action to show that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference. And like this show and every show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. We've been knocked down, but we can rise up if we rise up together. You saw that with the leaders of Robin Hood. We continue to see it from our friend Jim and his team at Essential Ohio. They just did another push, and they did 74 essential truck drivers today with a free lunch. 
And in the last week, they did another push and fed 74 essential truck drivers with a free lunch. They continue to feed volunteers out in Ohio, and they're going to be at the Ohio Food Bank and the Ohio National Guard coming up this week. That's what can happen if we rise together. And Baratunde sits on the board of BUILD. It's a youth-based organization that uses entrepreneurship to teach left-behind public school high schoolers. The kids are largely poor, sometimes undocumented, and they make the best people when we invest in them. The community has been disproportionately affected by COVID-19, and there's a fundraiser to help them get resources. Go to build.org. That's build.org. Every year, more than 500,000 kids drop out of high school. Countless others remain disengaged, leaving too many students unprepared for success in the 21st century. And while the partner schools are closed, the critical need for young people is even higher than before. BUILD works with kids and families who are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. Their staff is reaching out to young entrepreneurs, alumni, and their families to ensure they're getting adequate food, income, and tech assistance, and identify any gaps in resources. They've begun virtual mentoring and college counseling and are developing virtual classes and activities to keep students connected and engaged in learning as schools continue to be closed. And in April, they launched a new campaign to share stories of positivity and hope across the nation called Build Heroes. That's the hashtag, Build Heroes. They celebrate inspirational hero moments and the people who are going above and beyond to support the communities they serve in this unprecedented time. That includes teachers, mentors, students, parents, donors, and staff members at Build Heroes. You can share your own stories by emailing info at build.org or tag hashtag build heroes. You can make a difference. From coast to coast, they're asking their mentors and friends to consider launching individual crowdfunding campaigns to support the efforts of Build and work directly in their communities to help those infected by the coronavirus. You can make a donation, you can share a story, you can volunteer, and you can do all that in less than five minutes. Go to build.org right now. You can help a young man or woman rise up, and you can rise up with them. We can all rise up with them. Be a helper, do what you can, be vigilant, and be active. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag Angry Americans. Let me know. Let me know. Don't just be angry, especially now. Be active. big thanks go out to a few folks that helped make this episode happen. These pandemic episodes continue to be a beast. I'm actually coming to you right now from inside a car because everywhere else was unbearably loud and this is where the acoustics are the best. So we're continuing to drive on with a lot of help from a lot of people. First off, Baratunde Thurston. Follow him on Twitter. Listen to his programs. Go to his Instagram. Check out his book. He is a force of nature. Go check out How to Be Black. Go check him out on Patreon and support Baratunde Thurston, and you will be supporting America's future. He's also a super cool guy and plays good music. Big thanks to the whole Righteous Media team, especially Mighty Mercy Rich. She is always a front runner and always setting the pace. Creative Chris Rosenthal. 
are decathlete within this team. He is amazing. My thanks to Chris for all the amazing creative design he does. Bill Schultz, he is our timekeeper. He makes everything smooth and everything work. My thanks to you, my friend. And big thanks to Bravo Sierra. Memorial Day is coming up. You can give some Memorial Day gifts to someone in your life, the veterans in your life, or just anybody. Uh, You can give back to veterans every time you make a purchase. And Father's Day is coming up. So think ahead. Check out bravosierra.com backslash angryamericans, and you get 15% off if you use the code angry. My thanks to Bravo Sierra. Also, my thanks to our Patreon members. Patreon is kicking, man. It's starting to take off. I want to thank all of our plank owners, the first couple people who've been involved. They are the vigilant, the very vigilant, and the most vigilant. I want to especially thank Mark Schultz. Welcome to Mark Schultz. Thanks also to Mark Reed, to Mike Tipton, to Tim Fox. Dan Renegade, Anthony Serino, Grace Lutterick, and Vonnie Schallenberger. Vonnie, thank you. You continue to have our back. So look for Angry Americans on Patreon. We'll also have a link in the description wherever you got this pod or at angryamericans.us. I'm going to continue to put out exclusive content behind the scenes, and you can help keep this pod going. Media is tough in this environment, but your support via Patreon will help us keep this going and help me create new projects. So throw a few bucks if you can. We'll have some fun and you'll get some exclusive access. But my thanks to all of you and my thanks to Frank Miles at Fox News. Believe it or not, I was over at Fox News. I used to be over there quite a bit. I was on Megyn Kelly's show a bunch, and I even did Hannity once. But Fox News featured me on their website as a part of their quarantine routine. It's a regular feature that asks power brokers, quote-unquote, how their daily lives have changed, how they're still doing their jobs during the coronavirus. So they profiled me. I talked about angry Americans. I talked about righteous media. I talked about my family. They asked me how my routine changed and how I'm staying positive. You can find it on Fox News or just go to the angryamericans.us page, and you can check that article out. Out. They asked me how my daily routine has changed. They asked me what my biggest challenge was in doing my job and what surprised me most about how life has changed. I did not have to talk to or about Tucker Carlson, but my thanks to Fox News and especially to Frank for profiling me and for showing us some love. Speaking of love, it's time to thank a listener. Every week, I want to thank a few angry Americans for listening and supporting and being a part of this community. You're always running the race with me, and if you reach out, I will make you famous. I'll make you famous. I always want to hear from you. We have a hotline. It's 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a call, and I'll make you famous. Post, tweet on social. We will hook you up. We will hook you in, and we will make it happen. So do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. Like our good friend Mike Tipton, who is also a dedicated supporter on Patreon. I was angry. Now it's just so sad and hurts the killing of the jogger in Georgia. And no wonder people such as myself, uh, any of us who are on the edge of society already mistrust. I mean, I know not all police are that way, but just think of all the repercussions and just the stupidity and the, of the hatred to start this whole thing and then hide the facts of it. Um, it's a stupid virus, man. Added to hate. Hate and stupid virus. It's killing us all. Mike, thanks as always for calling in. I feel you. 
I think the situation with Ahmed Aubrey is atrocious. We're going to continue to cover it. I'm glad I got a chance to get into it with Baratunde. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter for more, and we will stay on it on this show. But keep the positivity coming, Mike. Keep your head up, and thanks for always having our back. Also, big thanks to Mike Barry, who is in Gothenburg, Sweden. He is, according to his bio, a patriotic American, a Swede who is worried about the state of the world today and would rather be kayaking. He is a consultant and owner at Griffin Logistics and Consulting. And he wrote me an awesome note this week, and I wanted to thank him. He said, hi, Paul. I'm an American living in Sweden, and I have to say that your podcast is amazing. No other podcast makes me feel the range of emotion that your show does each and every week. Well put together show, and let's not forget the music. Thanks. Mike, thanks for checking in from Sweden, and thanks to everybody else. We know we got a lot of listeners around the world. I want to thank you all for tuning in wherever you are. Please keep sharing the pod wherever you are, and we'll keep it going. But, Mike, thanks to you. I like it. I love it. Keep that feedback coming. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and sound off. Some of you have not done that yet. Go ahead and do it. Pull the trigger. This is the time. Sound off. Let me know what's got you angry. Let me know who you'd like to see as a guest. But I'm thankful to all of you. And as always, my deepest thanks to my family, my wife, and my two amazing boys. It's been a fun and trying couple of weeks. But my big guy is now four and a half. And he is studying the planets in school. His school has been doing an amazing job. And he is now studying a different phase of the planets every week. And we've been able to go outside and actually see Venus up in the sky, which has been awesome. He's also been studying Spanish and doing quite well and watching Despicable Me like six times a week, which we've got to stop. But we've been getting outside more and the boys continue to be a source of tremendous inspiration. And they're just awesome. And my thanks to them and to Lori for keeping it going. And my thanks to you. Keep pushing through the storm. Keep bringing the calm. Keep bringing positivity. Keep bringing light in the face of all the heat. And please keep telling your friends to check this podcast out. If you are on an Apple device, when you're done with this, please leave a quick review. It only takes a minute. Give me five stars. If you want to give me one stars, again, my name is spelled T-U-C-K-E-R-C-A-R-L-S-O-N. That's if you want to give one stars. If it's five, drop it here. But subscribe now, and we will have it hot and fresh and waiting for you now Thursday evenings. That's when it's been coming. Uh, Let me know what you think about that. We're trying to keep it moving. Um, But tell your friends and tell your moms, tell your dads and tell everybody else. And coming up, we will continue to have more of the dispatches. And I've also been doing Righteous Late Night. If you missed it this week, you can go to my Instagram page where it is posted and you will find a captivating uh, discussion with our old friend Ron Perlman. You never know who might check in, but we've been doing this a couple nights a week around 1030 Eastern. You can follow me on Twitter or look on my Instagram page for a notification or we'll let you know if you're a Patreon member. But I will be doing Righteous Late Night. We'll have a drink. We'll talk about the news and i will have special guests like ron perlman popping in and we got more podcasts coming later in the year so stay tuned and thank you for your support and go to angryamericans.us for video we've got video of this conversation with baratunde you can go back and check out jeffrey wright you can go all the way back and check out wes moore pete Buttigieg. Rosie Perez, Rachel Maddow, Megan McCain, and so many others. If you're new here, welcome. Go back and check out some of those older pods. And if you're not listening to as many pods, there's video. 
And if you got older kids, it might make for a good homeschooling class. But keep it coming and sign up for our newsletter. We will continue to adapt, improvise, and overcome throughout the pandemic. Stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we will keep this movement growing week by week by week. From Washington to Sweden, it's okay to be angry, especially now. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. We're all running this race. And that's because we're all paying attention. The great Little Richard died this week. And there will never be anyone like him. He was a true innovator, a true legend, a true creative genius, and a true angry American in all the best ways. From Tutti Frutti to Good God Miss Molly to Long Tail Sally, he set the template for a generation of musicians. My legal name is Richard Penniman, but I'm known to everybody as Little Richard, the architect of rock and roll. I am the originator. I am the innovator. I am the emancipator. I'm the motivator. I conceived it, achieved it, defined it, refined it, molded it, sold it, then the white man stole it. <laughs> From Elvis Presley to Prince, there would be none of them without the great Little Richard. And in an amazing twist that I only realized after he died, he also did the theme for one of my son's favorite shows, The Magic School Bus is Little Richard. I had no idea, but alas, a wonderful surprise is that my son is inadvertently a fan of Little Richard thanks to the Magic School Bus. Little Richard was a guy who redefined music and broke so many racial barriers, broke so many creative barriers. He was a true innovator and a true helper. So let's pour one out for Little Richard this week and keep the positivity coming. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Stay home if you can, and stay frosty. Stay frosty.